I can think of no other person that I would like to suffer through a bad book with other than you. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like we can come through this and we're better I people. Think so. And we never talk about it again. Probably. I mean, unless who knows what Shag's going to do next month. He'll be like, so how was it? How was Genesis? Hey, 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 hey. You do a good impression of Shag. <laughs> That's exactly what he sounds like. All you have to say is, I hate you so oh much. And you'll gosh. be it. Yeah. Gotham City, like any other large metropolis, abounds in girls of all shapes and sizes. Debutantes, nurses, stenographers, and librarians. Gotham City Library, Miss Gordon speaking. Lopez hair removal, this is Jose. Holy transformation. One minute, plain Barbara Gordon, librarian and Commissioner Gordon's daughter. And the next minute, something new has been added. Batgirl, modeled after her idol, Batman. Holy apparition! No, Boy Wonder, I'm Batgirl. You are no longer alone, Cape Crusader. It took me three years to track down the Jade Gato, and three more to figure out how to steal it. Funny, it only took me ten minutes to figure out how to snatch it back. No matter how you do it, crime doesn't pay girls. Episode 134 for February MMXVII. Barrel the Oracle is brought to you by Views from the Long Box. My name is Michael Bailey, and I am still kind of a bad geek. Not a fan of anime, never seen any of the Harry Potter films, much less read the books. I ventured a little further into the worlds of Star Wars and Star Trek, and I've even managed to watch a little Doctor Who. I've also managed to not watch a single episode of The Walking Dead. So what do I like? Comic books. I have been reading and collecting comic books since 1987, and I've been a fan of superheroes for as long as I can remember. Some would consider this a hobby, but I prefer to look at it as what it truly is. A crippling addiction that I may never recover from. Back in 2007, I started a podcast called Views from the Long Box to deal with this borderline personality disorder. Every week or so, I pick a particular comic or issue or character or whatever to talk about them, and then, well, I I talk about them. It's kind of what a podcast is. Sometimes I'm alone. Sometimes I'm joined by my semi-regular co-host, the Irredeemable Shag, or Thomas DJ, and the permanent semi-regular co-host, Andrew Leyland, 
and sometimes another friend from the podcasting and comic book world stops by to chat. The show is located at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com, where you can find old episodes and show notes and links to my other internet endeavors. You can also find the show on Facebook, and I'm on Twitter under the handle at Bailey's Podcasts. Views from the Long Box, a podcast about comic books or a desperate cry for help. You decide every Tuesday or so at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com. Backworld to Oracle is also brought to you by MileHighComics.com, your new and collectible comic book store. Mile High Comics has an inventory of over 5 million comics from the gold, silver, bronze, and modern age, and over 100,000 trade paperbacks. If you're not into the vintage stock, Mile High Comics also has a subscription service called the New Issue Comics Express, offering a discounted price for comics ready to hit the shelves. So if you're looking for vintage back issues or a great modern subscription service, be sure to check out MileHighComics.com. Backworld the Oracle is a proud member of the Batman Universe family of podcasts. Hashtag TBU family. Support TBU by going to thebatmanuniverse.net and subscribing to Patreon. Well, <laughs> I think it was a long time coming having this gentleman back on. <laughs> and usually it's whenever there's a Superman storyline and in this case superman's in it a blue superman but there's sort of another reason why and we'll get to it later why he was on here forcibly on here but i guess it's also an example of this power that i somehow have that i ask someone nicely to come on and even if it's a terrible story that they don't like they'll say yes for you so i'll do it but i enjoy uh talking with him with whenever and i just uh respect him and i really appreciate the knowledge and uh just fun he brings to any show so without further ado we've got michael bailey back on the show only for you stella only really <laughs> seriously though, though it was i was listening to you doing your little spiel and i almost went choo choo when uh you said the new issue comic express because that's what i hear every time i listen to your introduction but no thank you so much, and uh, just getting this out of the way, uh, the first one of the night early, uh, screw you, Shag. Ooh. Yeah, I, I think that's the best and way to come in. words. <laughs> oh my gosh. You, uh, yeah, I'm sure it won't be the only one once I go through the story of how this all happened. Because <laughs> I guess there is continuity to podcasts, but just in case people miss that particular episode and they're only on because, or they're only listening because you're on, we will, we'll let them know why. But it has really been a while, I feel like, since we've spoken. I was seeing in our chat window that it, it was May when you did the Total Justice. I said Extreme Justice, but Total Justice, where we talked about that. And since then, I remember you were shocked to find out that I had never seen any of the Superman films. I'm surprised mainly because, you know, you're not that much younger than me. So I figure uh-huh. that they were kind of in the zeitgeist, but then I realized that Probably in the 90s, it was more about Lois and Clark and the animated series than the Christopher Reeve films. Yeah, very true. So I, once other people found out that I had never seen them, they also accused me of not being a comics fan. Do you think one, like, is connected to the other? No. Because I no. felt like, man, you know, I had just not seen it, but I still love comics. How did I lose all credibility by not seeing these four films? I, I am, I am like, 100% against that kind of no true Scotsman type 
uh, attitude that if you haven't seen this or you haven't done that, you're not a true comics fan. You have produced, you know, over a hundred of this particular podcast reading decades worth of Batgirl stories. I know that you have gone through, how far are you into Spider-Man at this point? I'm in the 200, it's like the early 80s. So I'm almost upon Secret Wars. So I guess that's close to in the 300s, perhaps. So, so you you've done all that. You uh, you know every month you're you're you team up with Dustin and, and the group and talk about the latest issues. I mean, to, to sit there and say that you're well, you're ju- you've just lost all credibility just because you haven't seen four movies that are now now 30 years old. The, the <laughs> fourth one is, you know, that's yeah. just that's just BS. You know, there there isn't a. I it's funny because I had this discussion with a friend recently in, in that it, to me if if you say you like comics I think you're a comics fan uh, whether or not we can have like a long drawn out conversation depends on how much you've read but that doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with you that's just with anything you know anything you're into if I if I've never seen an episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer and I suddenly start watching it the people that followed it and watched every episode and have all the box sets are probably not going to want to put up with my BS until I got a little more under my belt. So, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, but it's just, no, I, I, God, that stuff makes me mad actually. <laughs> I mean, we're I'm supposed sure to be they were inclusive. saying it in jest, but yeah, I just was like, how did I lose like my comics card or whatever, you know, just from not watching it, but now it's rectified. And thanks to Chris Carnes, because I think perhaps he was also very <laughs> shocked. So he very nicely gave me, uh, the set as a as a Christmas gift, and so it had Superman 1, the Donner Cut of 2, which I know you have um, thoughts about, 3, 4, and then Superman Returns, and I actually had seen Superman Returns in theaters, and I had the DVD prior, so I at least knew of that one. But I, I do want to say, since you're on the call now, and I can talk to you kind of face-to-face, that I really like Christopher Reeves. I think that perhaps above all of the other people that have played Superman, that he has really embodied both the Clark Kent and Superman persona. And I really saw this, like, physically. I think it was in Superman 1, perhaps, unless it was 2, where he's in Lois's apartment. Mm-hmm. And he's, like, hunched over as Clark Kent, and she leaves the room, and she's, like, talking about Superman. And he, like, picks up, and you see him, you know, straighten up and, like, really take on... I mean, that was just, for me, the moment that you're like, yes, this guy really... I mean, he's Superman and Clark Kent. And so I really, really liked um, Christopher Reeve as Superman. Well, you know, he it's hard for me to be uh, objective about these films sometimes because I have seen Superman the Mooney, the Mooney, <laughs> Officer <laughs> Mooney. <laughs> uh, I have seen Superman the movie more times than I can remember. I, I don't know how many times I've seen it, but I, I you know, when I was a kid, uh, especially if it came on like television because ABC would show it every once in a while. I could always watch the film up until the point where he changed into Superman and then I had to go to bed uh, oh. because it was on late. But no, I, I watched it again and again and again. I Like all the films, really. Superman 3, I remember taping off of HBO with our first VCR uh, back in like 84, 85. And... It's it's really hard for me to 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 talk about how much I love it. That doesn't mean to say that I don't have problems with all of the films, but Christopher Reeve is not one of them. Uh, you know, he is he is my Superman live action. 
just as people older than me have George Reeves and people younger than me have Dean Cain or Tom Welling or now to a lot of people, it's Henry Cavill. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think poor Brandon Lee kind of gets left uh, Brandon Lee, Brandon Routh. <laughs> Brandon Lee definitely gets left out because one, he's dead and two, he never played <laughs> Superman. Uh, but, you know, Brandon Routh kind of gets left out of that. But I thought that, you know, he did as well with the material he was given as he could. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's, you, you, you kind of nailed it. You, you nailed why he was so good in the role is that he did change himself physically between the two. You know, George Reeves, George Reeves didn't do that on the, on the, on the 50 series. He was pretty much kind of the same in both identities. And Dean Cain was always more, you know, a little looser with, you know, who he is as Clark and who he is as uh, Superman. And we really didn't get to see all that much Clark out of Henry Cavill. So really, you know, outside of, Gerard Christopher on the Superboy television series. Uh, we, we haven't seen a, an actor really play both parts on a, over a long period of time. So we got to see Chris, you know, over four, uh, over four movies. Now I will say part of the, I really liked one and two. Mm-hmm. I did have an issue, you know, with the time thing. I was like, ugh, I, you know, why are you, I, I felt like it was very selfish of him, you know, to try to save this one person. Whereas, you know, I think there should have been repercussions, like maybe the town was destroyed because he saved her, but I didn't create the film. But it was funny because my mom, we, I watched it over Christmas break, and, and my parents were with me. And my mom, of all people, said, don't worry, this will come back to him in the next one. Which was really funny because, you know, this is not like a comics family. I've taken her to see, you know, comic films and everything, but to hear, like, someone tell me that, you know, something <laughs> else is going to happen, this is going to carry long-term uh, repercussions. Uh, I only saw the Donner cut. I didn't see the theatrical where that's where the the super kiss is. is that mm-hmm. right? Yes, the super kiss. Or the, the forget. Yeah, which sounds ridiculous. I do have to say, but then I feel like yeah, I feel like I missed it though because it was in Superman th- four that he kisses her and she's like mind wiped. Mm-hmm. So you wouldn't really draw that connection only seeing the Donner cut and then seeing Superman four. Yeah, the the turning back the world thing wasn't the original ending of Superman the movie. Uh, it was more of a generic he saves the day type of thing. Uh, and then they were filming one and two back to back or simultaneously, excuse me. So they would do all the Daily Planet scenes from the first movie and then they would do all the Daily Planet scenes from the second film. And they got to the point where they were like, we, we got to get this movie up by Christmas. We are not going to finish it if we're working on both of them. So they focused everything to the first one, changed the ending and said, we'll figure that out later. But then Richard Donner was removed as director. So they, and they brought in Richard Lester who had been uh, kind of serving as a mediary between Richard Donner and the producers, the Salkinds. Uh, so it's, it's, it's this whole like weird behind the scenes drama of how that film got made. That's kind of fascinating to me and I won't go into it too much cause we'll, I'll sit here all night talking about it, which we're not. I, <laughs> I know I read a little bit about it. Um, I really like IMDB and the trivia section. And so sometimes if I'm watching a movie or a television show episode, I will look at the trivia to see if there's any interest. So I did see a lot of stuff regarding that, uh, whether or not, you know, it's true or not, who can tell. Uh, I did actually really like Superman 3, even though, again, it gets really ridiculous, especially like the computer and that woman gets sucked in and kind of becomes brainiac. And I'm like, why didn't you just 
pulled the trigger and do Brainiac. But I liked the Smallville scenes. I think those were some of my favorites. And I mean, having a Neto tool. The the first part, however ridiculous it was, was pretty comical. Where like things just get worse and worse, like a domino effect. And, you know what? And then this guy is like drowning in his car. It yeah. <laughs> so however ridiculous it is, I thought that that was pretty comical. I have a, a fun fact for you about that scene. You know oh, how he, please. Yeah. you know how Clark Kent runs to the little photo booth to change into Superman. Yeah. And he gives that picture. That kid that he gives oh. the picture to is young Clark Kent that lifts up the truck in Superman the movie. Oh. He was also a soldier in Man of Steel. Wow. So there's your there's your fun IMDb fact for uh That, that. is thank you. You're better than IMDb. <laughs> well, I appreciate <laughs> that. Uh and then finally Superman 4, I was a little bit bored with it. Uh, I don't know, maybe you can persuade me to watch again, but at one point I did fall asleep and I woke up and I realized I hadn't missed anything. Is that, I don't know. The, the funny thing about Superman 4 is it was not produced by the Soul Kinds. Uh, it wasn't even put out by Warner Brothers initially. It was put out by the Canon Group uh, that did such films as Delta Force and Breakin' and Breakin' 2, Electric Boogaloo. Uh, and they got the rights and the, the, the Golem Globus, who were the two men behind Canon, were known for by that point for kind of cheaping out and right before they started filming Superman 4, they cut the budget in half. So suddenly all these really great scenes they had planned came off looking like crap. And then when they put the film together, they cut 30 minutes out of it. There was a whole other nuclear man before the guy, the blonde guy in the cape. Lex created one before that. And that was all just eliminated from the film. Which confused me because I didn't get to see it in the theater because Superman 4 was in the theater for like five minutes. Oh, wow. Uh, one week I saw it. And next week I went to my, uh, my sister said, I'll take you to see it. And it wasn't there. So we ended up seeing Masters of the Universe instead. It was gone in a week. It was gone in a week. Um, oh, my gosh. And But I read the comic book adaptation. I read the novelization. I had the little souvenir magazine that Starlog put out that had posters that my friend Mary and my sister Mary's friend took the John Cryer poster because she was in love with him in 1987. And I finally got to see the film, and it was it was like this great disappointment. And for years I thought, man – if they just left that footage in there, everything would be better. Cut to 2006 when they released Superman 4 on DVD with the extra fo- with the deleted scenes, and I'm just like, no, no, it was still <laughs> Superman 4 is a noble failure. It tried to do something significant with Superman and talk about something, and just ended up getting bogged down in bad special effects and. Like a pretty crappy villain, in, in all honesty. I love Nuclear Man. I love that film. I will defend that film. I did a I did a commentary of that movie, as a matter of fact, uh, which Rob Kelly still seems to just question my sanity about. But I'm just really glad you liked them. I was afraid that it was like, hey, watch these, and you were going to be like, these are terrible. Why am I friends with Mike in the first place? No, I think, and I think they deserve the reputation. I think... The sad thing, though, about living, I think, in this modern age is that especially, I mean, Man of Steel is probably (laughs) maybe the best example of this. Going from Man of Steel to Superman 1 and 2 and the pacing is really hard. 
So that's why I asked you at one point when I was watching this, is it just me or does it seem really slow? But I think it's just, you know, then when they were filming it and now where it, there's, you know, a cut every, like, two seconds where it's, like, switching, switching, switching and ADD and all that stuff. So that's the only, like, caveat is I think you really have to separate, separate yourself from modern storytelling in order to best appreciate these. But I think that they were really good. And then I got to see that reference for with Supergirl when she was shooting the Peanuts when she mm-hmm. was and so I got to see this. But he got, man, he was looking rough. Yes. I wanted to take some pictures of him. Like his, you could see his six o'clock shadow. It was, it was bad. <laughs> Sideshow Collectibles did a uh, figure of that version. Did uh, they really? Yeah, with the dark costume oh. and everything. I Superman 3, I watched Superman 2 and Superman 3 more because they were in heavier rotation on HBO when I was a kid. And uh, I am not a fan of the Donner cut of 2. Because they eliminate certain parts of that film to, that, to me, are really important. Because that's the ver- I grew up with a theatrical cut. So when you see Superman fly up to the Daily Planet building and he looks at Zod and says, "Don't you believe in freedom of the press?" It does not have the punch of him flying up and going, "Excuse, General, would you care to step outside?" And I, I mean, it's just. It's one of the most awesome parts of that film for me. That's just not there in the Donner cut. And in the theatrical cut, everything you see with Jarrell replace with his mother. Because they Brando, for legal reasons, would not come back because uh, he wanted more money, essentially. And they brought in Susanna York. So all of the relationship talk and all the things about him giving up his powers was a conversation he had with Lara, not Jarrell. But I, in my head, there is a way to have both films kind of together, and it would it, it, you can make it happen. I I, I kind of like the Jarrell scenes that we that we got to see for the first time because when that film when that when that cut came out, that was a revelation. That was something that Superman fans had been talking about since the eighties. We knew that there was this all these other scenes, and we never thought we would see them, and suddenly it was there. And I think that's another reason why I was kind of disappointed because I, you know, I I had built it up that it was going to be such a better film. And to me, it wasn't. But I think it's kind of unfair to judge it too harshly because it's not the version of Superman 2 that Richard Donner would have made. This is the version that he had in mind originally. But with everything that happened and the changes that were made to Superman the movie, they would have had to change substantial parts of Superman 2. So it's it's this weird thing. I, I, I complain about it a lot just because uh, it was really disappointing. And, and so many people dog the theatrical cut of Superman 2 that I feel like I have to defend it. Uh, but my perception of how Clark Kent is what started to become formed based on Superman 2 and especially Superman 3. Because Superman 3 is a great Clark Kent movie. Mm, absolutely. Yep. And I loved seeing him with Lana, and I love Annette O'Toole, and the, and like you're right, those scenes in Smallville are amazing. It is mm-hmm. just so neat to watch him be normal, like when they're sitting in the gym cleaning up after the reunion, and he's just playing the piano. And that's Christopher Reeve really playing the piano, by the way, um, uh, playing Earth Angel. I just I just get like this feeling that 
you know, Clark Kent is just as important as Superman. And that has carried with me since I was a little kid, which is why when the pre the post-crisis stuff came about and I started buying the comics and I saw more of the Clark Kent that I liked from the movies in the comics, I think that's why I got into the comics as much as I did. I really liked how, how Lana would be like talking about something and then Clark would ask her a question and she'd be talking about something completely <laughs> yeah. different. And it would have happened just once for like multiple times and he'd be completely baffled <laughs> at what she was talking about because clearly they weren't on the same page. My favorite moment of that is man, uh, Stu to the gills, uh, Stu to the gills at noon. I, I think he's only had a chocolate milk. No, not him, Brad. Oh my gosh. Ah. Uh, was there something with her? Because it seemed like at the end of three, she had a potential job there, and in four, maybe there was going to be a future between her and Clark. But then all of a sudden, four, four starts out, and she's not to be seen, even though she had a job at the end of three. So was there something going on there? Depending on who you believe, okay. Margot Kidder, <laughs> Conspiracy was, Margo Kidder was not in Superman 3, except for that first scene and that last scene. Because she dogged the producers and the press. She was very outspoken that she didn't like what happened with Richard Donner. And so, you know, Ilya Salkind, the the younger, the son, is all like, no, we wanted to go into a new direction. And, you know, whatever his accent is, which I'm doing a horrible version of. Uh, but, I wondered what was going on yeah, there. <laughs> but we wanted to do another direction and, and, and we wanted to bring in another actress. But it's kind of like one of those things where it's, it's pretty apparent that uh, – that, you know, Margot kind of worked her way out of that movie. And I thought, and this was the interesting thing for me, I liked in four that you brought in another woman, a very attractive woman in the form of Mariel Hemingway, who was into Clark, mm. not Superman, right. Clark. And I had just started reading the comics that summer, and there was a character named Cat Grant who was really into Clark. So it was all these things kind of coming together at the same time for me. So I would have liked to have seen more of Lana, but then I will never say the words, I don't want to say, see more Annette O'Toole, which is why when she was cast as Martha on Smallville, I was so excited because I'm like, yes, finally. Okay. I'm a little uncomfortable that I think that, you know, Clark's mom's kind of hot, but at the same time, <laughs> You know, it's finally we, we, we have like this connection to an older version of Superman. And I thought, you know, it was, just, it was just amazing. And the producers had no idea she was in Superman 3. I don't know how that happened, but it did. But no, I, I, I would have loved to have seen more of her because I think I think it was nice to have a, a character that looked at Clark being a good person. Because one of the things about the Donner cut of two that I didn't like is that it continued this Lois not seeing Clark at all almost. Mm. Like, you know, he's, you know, he's the, you know, like he's, uh, their dynamic was very different in the theatrical cut. It was very apparent in the theatrical cut of Superman 2 that they were really good friends. Like he had a thing for her and she knew that, but she cared about him. And in the Donner cut of two, it seems like until she th starts thinking that he's Superman, she's completely dismissive of him. Mm. And, uh, and, and that carried over into Superman Returns, uh, which is why I'm not really happy with that, Lois, for a number of reasons. But 
I'm babbling yeah, too I'm much. Gonna have to <laughs> no, that's okay. I'm going to have to rewatch that. It's been so long. I just remember with Superman Returns being, well, first of all, the two dogs eat each other, which, you know, um, I remember that. And just using Lex all the time is something that, that has really gotten me slightly annoyed because I really want to see, like, an epic battle like Parasite or... I don't know, Metallo. I don't know, just really trying to pull in from the rogues, and I feel like they haven't really done that with Superman, but and they decided to go with... I, I'm going to have to rewatch that. But something I wonder if I should watch, because I remember watching it maybe when I was younger, I remember snippets, is the Supergirl film. <laughs> is that worth my time? Like- it has some fun moments. Mm-hmm. It is very slow. Okay. Uh, you know, you were talking about how the pacing of Superman the movie is so different from the pacing of films today. You know, and and at first I was going to kind of wait till you were done to say, no, well, you know, back then that was the very first big budget superhero film. And they were really trying to make it epic and grandeur. And that's how films were made. But you said all that. So I didn't have to. Uh, Supergirl. (laughs) Supergirl is very it's kind of a softer movie Mm -hmm. Um, when you see her in Argo with her parents and when you see her go to Earth and she's staying at this all-girls school uh, as Linda Lee, uh, I think special effects-wise it's well worth it because it has some of the best flying sequences in any of the films. Uh, there, There is this whole – but again, talking about the slowness, when she comes to Earth, she flies out of the water – and there's like this five to ten minute scene of her just flying around. They called it an air ballet. Is it like in Star Trek where it takes about five minutes for Captain Kirk to get to yes. Earth for the first yeah, time? Yeah, that, that, that's a good – in fact, <laughs> ironically, both with a Jerry Goldsmith score. Uh, oh, so okay. your, your comparison is apt on a number of levels. Uh, I have seen three versions of this film. Uh, the, the Three? Wow. Yeah, the theatrical cut was shorter than the international cut and then there was a director's cut and anchor bay released a dvd with the international cut and the director's cut years ago and i bought it because i'm me uh and i do that and i have somewhere in this house is the vhs of the of the film and i mean helen slater's great jimmy olsen's in it mark mcclure uh the only the only actor to appear in all five of those movies uh, you get to see right. Lucy Lane, uh, and she becomes friends with Linda Lee, uh, who is Supergirl's secret identity. Uh, and you get to see um, her fall in love. Did you ever see Die Hard? I have seen Die Hard. Okay, you know the the jerk that gets himself killed early in the film? Was it Hans Bubby? Yeah. Yeah, that guy? He's the love interest for Supergirl. Whoa. In the movie. <laughs> oh, boy. Art Bachner. Um, okay. I would advise... At some point, watch it. Don't rush. It's not It's not a priority. <laughs> okay. But if you're like, hmm, I've got nothing to do today, and I don't think that bad Fantastic Four films on television, maybe I'll watch Supergirl. Also, just watch it to, you know, kind of see, like, Helen Slater uh, as yeah. the character instead of being, you know, Eliza Danvers. On the- yeah, that's what I was thinking about. It, also being a completist now that I've seen the other ones, you know, why not watch this other one? But yeah. It, it's another one of those noble failures. It it tried to do something, and originally in the script, Christopher Reeve was supposed to make an appearance, and he decided, I'm not doing any more Superman films, and then they threw a money truck at him to do Superman 4, and he got story control. 
So, but he was kind of done with it at that point, which I think would have been great to see them flying together, but that's yeah. just me. Moving in, this is a good transition to the actual television show. Uh, I feel like we talked about it when maybe last year, when, probably when it had first started, but we haven't reconnected now that it has shifted to the CW. Mm-hmm. Have you been enjoying Supergirl in its current form? You know, it's really funny. The, um, the first episode hit, and uh, I'm not trying to take anything away from Supergirl, but they gave me a Superman Mm-hmm. Those first two episodes, that is the closest I have ever seen in live action to the Superman I see when I close my eyes. Aww. I loved their dynamic. I loved how, even though he was there, the focus didn't really leave her. Uh, mm-hmm. And what I love about the show is that they are giving us that thing you were just talking about. We get to see Metallo, and we get to see the Parasite, and yeah. we get to see, you know, like all these, you know, all these villains that have, you know, that have either, you know, Metallo has been in live action two times before this between Smallville and the Superboy television series, but they gave us a really good version of the character. And Mm -hmm. the Parasite was amazing. I think, I think the show has embraced doing more comic book things than even when it was on CBS. Um, I think my only real problem with the way the season has been going is they're a little heavy-handed with the political subtext. Mm. (laughs) And by a little, I mean they're a lot heavy-handed. Now, I don't blame them because they're trying to say something and they're using the show to say that. But given how divisive the election here was in the United States last year, especially last fall, and how things are now, while we need that, it's just, you know, I kind of come to the show for a little bit of escapism. Right, um, yeah. But having said that, it's their right to do it, and I'm not going to say they shouldn't. I'm just like, mm-hmm. guys, you need to throttle it back a little bit. But yeah, um, I continue to love Wynn. Wynn Shot is one of my favorite characters on that show. Uh, I'm glad they found something to do with Jimmy, uh, making him the Guardian. That was an interesting, yeah. uh, that was an interesting twist. I wasn't seeing that. Mm-hmm. I would have preferred him to be Gangbuster, but that's just... Because uh, I'm super dork for that character, uh, and you know I really like the other characters they brought in. Lena Luther is really cool, actually. Yeah, yeah. I was not expecting that, and she still has not mastered not hiding her British accent because uh, it kind of breaks through every once in a while. She was in a Christmas movie uh, that Rachel and I watch every year, uh, where she really couldn't break that. British accent she had, but <laughs> she was trying to play American. It didn't go well. But uh, oh, gotcha. Um, but it's just actually everybody on that show. I think has been on a Christmas movie that Rachel and I have watched in the past. Oh, okay. I know Shyler Lee was in one. Uh, mm. So yeah, that, that's kind of funny. But no, well, how, what have you thought? Do you are you enjoying it still? I am still enjoying it. I think uh, one of my friends. I think it changed, however subtly it, it may have, when it went over to the CW. I, and I think it's just the nature of the CW. But you know, when we catch Monel like practically like about to have sex in a copier and I room or wherever that was in the storage closet, I was like, uh, okay. Um, and you know, not to you know, not to be a prude and be like that shouldn't be on there. But I just feel like you know, last season, I don't know if necessarily that that would have happened. 
one of my friends uh, emailed me and said, what's going on? You know, this is supposed to be Supergirl. Why is Superman all of a sudden? Now you got this Monel character. Like, what's with all these guys? Which I certainly um, understood her, her reticence and I guess not really liking that. But I think at some point they did need to bring Superman on there. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I agree that I enjoyed their dynamics. And, and, you know, he was only on for two episodes. So I, I don't think he outshined her very much. But I didn't like Monel at all. He was obnoxious. He's grown on me, but I'm still. Why are you laughing? Just, just the way you he, said that. Like he is so annoying, but I kind of like him now. It was really kind of cute. Well, so. he's. I know. Well, he's like Jamie Lannister. You hate him, and then all of a sudden you're actually like liking him at the end. But I, yeah, he's grown on me. But I'm confused because she was so much in love with Jimmy. Mm-hmm. And now it's like he's gone. Like the beginning, you know, they had that kiss, I guess, or almost kiss. And then she's like, actually, I can't be with you. And now all of a sudden she's with somebody else. I'm a little confused about that. Yeah. the A friend of mine, the Phantom Troublemaker, as he calls himself, um, oh. who always wears a luchador mask. It's, he's a really cool guy. Um, okay. He's one of my buddies from Dragon Con. Uh, okay. he, uh, he was talking on Facebook about the fact that since it's gone to the CW, it seems like everybody has to have a relationship. Whereas on CBS, there were people that were in love with each other and stuff like, you know, when and silver Banshee kind of hooked up there for a couple of episodes and, right. you know, uh, Supergirl was dating Kat's son, but that was never seen to be like the focus. And now everybody has a romantic entanglement. You know, I'm really liking Alex and Maggie together, and I'm glad that they brought Maggie Sawyer to the show and that they're embracing an element of her character that they couldn't talk about when she was first created. I'm just so glad that she could be out now because back when John Byrne created her, all of the references to her being a lesbian were hinted at but never said. It wasn't until like the 90s that they were able to come out with it, essentially. Mm -hmm. Literally. And... But it just seemed like, and, and you know, I know it's a Valentine's episode, but the more recent one, you know, it, it just yep. seemed like, well, John has his thing. And Wynn, you know, hooks up with that kind of cute alien chick that beats everybody up. And, you know, uh, you know, we have Maggie and Alex and, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. Monel and Supergirl finally hook up. And it's just like, you know, I. And Mixie, <laughs> Mi- don't forget Mixie's Pitlick. He was a little too handsome. Oh, I, I I when I see Mixie, I see goofy face. So you know, see with a boiler with a, hat with a bowler hat, yes. Shirt and <laughs> yeah, but uh, no, I having you know even with those like minor quibbles here and there where I feel like mm-hmm. they kind of drop the ball. Like the the one thing, the one problem I have with all the CW shows is sometimes they have too much plot for the episode. Yeah, and so when they get to the ending, like when it came back from the season uh, break. And they have that whole thing of Supergirl going to save Kevin Smith's daughter off planet. It seemed like the ending of that was so truncated because they had all this really cool stuff leading up to it. But I'm so glad this show is here. I'm so glad that every week I can sit down and watch something Superman related and it be really good and give me everything I want to see out of that care out of these characters. Mm -hmm. I got a shirt rip at a super uh, Clark Kent shirt rip. And I haven't seen that since the lousy ones we saw. Well, everyone says Smallville. I don't really count Smallville personally, but that's just, I just, I, 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 
He never really wore that. Though. Yeah, but in the last shot of the series is him ripping his shirt open and you know and all that. So, but um, no, I, I, I you're right. There are some differences with it, but mm-hmm. I'm still really. I think they've upped their game from last season, and the special effects continue to be amazing for a television budget. Yeah, I'm interested to see. I agree with you with the Maggie and Alex. I almost said Kate and Maggie. Maggie and <laughs> Alex relationship, and I think it was one of the best coming out scenes and stories that I've seen. Uh, and just like how uncomfortable Alex was, she couldn't even put a name. She couldn't even say it, that one scene where they're at the bar. And uh, I, I just think that's developed really well. And I'm interested to see where this uh, Lena Luther and Kara like, friendship goes because it's a very interesting friendship. I wonder if it's going to go the route of Lex and Clark because it seems like Smallville's in continuity in this show because of that thing. Who said that? Oh, it was Jimmy. Wasn't it? Jimmy said that Clark and Lex were friends. You know, I remember that. D- does that make Smallville in continuity, would yeah, you say? Yeah, but that also goes back to the, the Silver Age and the Bronze Age oh, when okay. they were friends. And, yeah, you know, it's you know we saw Lionel, uh, a very, very bald Lionel. Um, yes, he was. <laughs> but, see, and, and here's the thing. I, I don't know how much Smallville you watched. Uh, all of okay. it? I have all of them. I love Smallville. So, given that Smallville had a multiverse, do you want... Uh, John Glover to show up as Lionel Luther in an episode, pop out of the multiverse and bedevil Kara for an episode or two. I really like John Glover. Yeah. Well, so you know, I'd I'd be fine. With <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it'd be good to keep them separate. I, I get what you're saying. No, no, not not. Like, why see, not? everyone wanted Tom Welling or or the vocal contingent of Tom Welling fans wanted Tom Welling. I always thought it'd be cooler if he showed up as like Ultraman, like yeah. the the evil Kryptonian, uh, mm-hmm. just because I I think he'd probably have more fun playing that because <laughs> he seems done with that. Like every time, yeah. every time you see an interview with him, they ask him about it. I'm like, leave that man alone. <laughs> he gave you 10 years. Yeah, so. very true. Like you said, I think it's an exciting time, not only for Superman fans, but I also think just people who are looking for a female-led television show, and I think we got it, and I think it's been succeeding, and I'm hoping that Wonder Woman pushes it forward for uh, movies, Uh and then Captain Marvel is coming up, and we have Jessica Jones over on Netflix, so I feel like, you know, more women heroes are are coming to the forefront, because it seems like they failed, you know, in the early 2000s and the 90s with Catwoman. Uh And Electra, so like there was a bad stigma. So now I think it's it's coming back and sort of making people forget that stuff. Yeah, I get Captain Marvel coming too. So oh, I'm so excited about that. Oh, yeah. you said Captain Marvel. When you say Captain Marvel, I think Shazam. I so. know. Sorry, yeah. I should just say, and and I'm confused because I wonder if they are going to skip her Ms. Marvel. I think they are. Origin, I think or just go to Captain. I think Man. the current because uh, I heard something about the current origin in the comics is the origin they're probably going to go for for the films. So, okay. Okay. I guess there'd be a confusion now. Is, is it Kamala Khan? That <laughs> exactly. Khan. Yeah. Well, our discussion points, I don't know if you've been paying attention, but they've all started with S's. We had the Superman films. Uh, we've had Supergirl. And now we're going to finish up with our final S, and that's Shag. <laughs> Because we have to transition. So the reason why you're listening to this, I guess, is because you want to hear all about Genesis. 
And the thing with me going through chronologically all of Barbara Gordon's appearances is that I come upon things that I have never even heard of in my life, which I don't know if that is good or bad. So I had never heard of Hacker Files until I read it and, and forced Shag to come on and read this with me, and he's never read them before. And then this Genesis thing. So I'm record. Here's the backstory because there is continuity with his show. So if you're just listening to this episode because you love Genesis so much, then. <laughs> That is nobody listening to this episode. Maybe somebody will write in and defend it. So I'm recording with Shag. I guess it was in the fall. And we were doing the final night little series, another series that I had no idea existed. And I guess we got off topic somehow, and he was talking about different places that Barbara Gordon appears. And he mentions this Genesis story. He's like, oh, you're going to have to do Genesis. Barbara's in it. And I'm like, "Uh, no, she's not on my list because I have, you know, like a nerd, like all nerds. I've got an Excel document that shows all of the different issues I need to go through in chronological order. And he's very forceful about it. Like, yes, she's in it. Yes, she's in it. And then he goes on Comic Book Database, and he looks it up and sees a tie-in, Ezreal 34. Bam, she's in that. And I said, well, it's not on my list. I don't think I really need to cover it. And then he guilts me and says, you know what? I don't I don't even know you. And if you don't believe me that this conversation happened, it's all there. I think it's in the bloopers because I put it back there. And so afterwards, I don't know if I recorded this. I may have. But I was, you know, convinced that, okay, apparently I need to do this in order to retain Shag's respect. And he, I asked, you know, are you going to do this? And he said, oh, no, that's a god-awful story. But you know who really likes it? Michael Bailey. <laughs> okay, so he's like, you should ask Michael Bailey to do it. And I'm like, okay, you know, he, he might be busy, but I'll ask him. And so then I, you know, I go to Facebook. It wasn't around that time, but a little bit later as I was getting closer, and I asked if you want to do this. And your response was that you also disliked the story. And so I threw Shag under the bus and said, well, Shag said you loved this story and that you would record with me. And so even though you despise it, <laughs> you've decided very nicely to come on and do this but basically it's all shag's fault that number one i'm even doing the story and number two i harangued you into doing it with me you know i i (laughs) I, i've known shag for almost 12 years now wow and in that time we have become pretty good friends i mean uh, Mm -hmm. i i say this with all honesty uh you know he he is deep down beneath the cold black heart that beats in his chest he is a. I mean, he came to see Rachel and I when Rachel was in the hospital with her wreck. Okay, so I'm going to throw this out right now yeah. that I love Shag like a brother. But here's what that <laughs> son of a did. There are certain friends in your life that you look at almost as family, but they do things every once in a while just to mess with you, and. To me, this is the equivalent of, let's say, you and your cousin have a grandparent that neither of you really like spending time with. And your cousin keeps telling your grandmother, oh, Mike really wants to come and see you. And you can't say no because, you know, guilt. But and behind the scenes, they're laughing the entire time. And that's what happened here. He Mm -hmm. Shag screwed me over. I mean, there's there's no other way to say that. Uh, And he will pay at some point. This man is going to pay because here's the thing. 
Yeah. I don't hold grudges often, yeah. but I'm epic when I do. So I I think one it he oh. he, he bullied you into doing this. You know, you, you didn't want to talk about Genesis, and after reading Genesis, I know you really didn't want to talk about Genesis because you have a soul, which is kind of the heart of the story when you really think about it. Uh, but it's just one of those things where, you know, you ask me, and you know, I I consider you not only a friend but somebody I respect. And if you ask me to do something, I'm more than likely going to do it because you know you don't want to disappoint Stella. Because Stella will stab you in the side with a knife <laughs> when you're least suspecting it. I, I, you know, at, at one point I told Pam Pam <gasps> that. Uh, Pam Pam, thank you, know, you for using that name. Yeah, I'm just I'm trying to be nice and fit in to the show. But uh, one day I told him, I go, don't don't mess with her because she's she she has that innocent veneer, but beneath that lies the cold fiery heart of a of a warrior and uh he said something about you one day he goes i found out stella did this yeah you were completely right so (laughs) but having said that even if shag had not totally dicked me over here and told you an out and out lie by the way i feel victimized slightly i i mean you're like really in there but (laughs) I think he was playing on my naivete because it sound it sounded really truthful. He's like, "Oh, you know who does like that? You know who would like to do that with you, Michael Bailey." And I completely normally I can see through his BS, but I believed him, and I am so sorry. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay because 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 I have been known to like terrible things. So and my favorite this Batman is very film true. is Batman and Robin, and people don't believe me. So I felt so- like maybe it's possible. Like some people like odd things. Yes, and uh, I, I think that film gets more crap than yeah, it deserves. See? I still have I still have to do my commentary for that. It's the only one I haven't done yet, um, and I haven't listened to your commentary with Josh and Don because I haven't done mine yet. So, uh, and it's the twenty and it's the twentieth anniversary Uh-oh. this year. Uh, oh, yeah, we're going to be talking about that at Dragon Con on, on a panel. I know, um, but it's just so I, I want to say this: screw you, Shag. Mm-hmm. I will get you back. And it might be on this show. I may come in when you least suspect it. Every breath you take and every move you make Every bond you break Every step you take I'll be watching you And, uh, well, sh- well, Stella will know, but because I'm not going to just... <laughs> I'm just going to barge into your house one day. Hey. <laughs> You're like, I'm on the show yeah. now. That's <laughs> I, yeah, that's a, that's a good hey, because that's the, do I need to call the police hey if I'm kicking in your door? So, but no, but, 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 but here's the thing. We're going to have a good time I think tonight. So. Yeah, I'm already having a good time. And that's the best revenge we can have. See, what he wanted was us to be miserable. And what I did was turn that around and decide, okay, this is a terrible story. It's not even remotely one of the best crossovers DC ever did. But I'm going to have fun doing it. Mm-hmm. So that that is where we get our revenge. Yeah. But, you know, I love Shag uh-huh. I look at him as a brother. And I swear to God, when I see him in April, I'm going to punch him at some point in the face. Wow, yeah. And he's coming on. He's actually going to be on next month. So I don't know if there will be any fallout from this show on that. Okay. The only thing I'm going to ask, yes, please. You know, I, I don't normally ask things. Yeah. But if I have to cover this, you have to bring me back when you do DC One Million, because I like DC One Million. 
I I take requests. I also, <laughs> besides forcibly, yeah. Oh, you're already down. Oh, okay, good. I good, totally good. have you already down. It's like right there on the side, Michael Bailey. Yeah, I gotcha. <laughs> okay, good. Because yeah. I actually like that series. How many issues? Uh, there's only four issues okay. of the main series. I don't know how many Oracle appears in because some of the stories. That's take... just number two. So yeah. And I doubt I don't think she's in any of the crossovers because most of those take place in the future. Oh, okay. So I'd have to reread like Nightwing and stuff, but that would just give me an excuse to reread all of DC One Million because we've got a little bit of time before you're going to be covering that. So yeah. there you go. I got the omnibus. I mean, I'm I'm in deep. Oh wow! There, yes, you are. I <laughs> say so. Well, I guess now that we've ragged on Shag for enough time and he's not here to defend himself. Should we get into this thing and see if we survive Genesis? <laughs> uh, you want me to do the synopsis of the Yeah, of the I guess might as well get it over with. Okay, so all of these books came out uh, at, to give a little context, and I know you've talked about it with uh, Final Night when you had Pan Pan on. Not Pan uh, Pan. Pan Pan oh, on? Shag. Shagalicious. No, that was Shag. No, Pan Pan was on with Trentus Magnus on his show to talk oh. about Final Night. That's where my wires got crossed. Tom is going to hit me in the face when he sees he me. He already, next. yeah. I mean, he yells at me about it already. That's okay. I appreciate you. DC from like 96, 97, and 98, and 99, when they, d- yeah, even in 2001 with, uh, with the Joker's Last Laugh, uh, they decided to go, instead of having their crossovers take place over several months they did everything in one month so final night and genesis and dc 1 million and day of judgment were all weekly series so all of these books were published in august of 1997 they were it was written genesis was written by john byrne with art by ron wagner so you know you have some really great creative heavyweights here and i think every i think ron wagner did as good as he could with the material that he had. Uh, this is not John Barron's finest hour. But anyways, this is the story of Genesis. The whole thing starts off with some funky stuff happening to superheroes and non-superheroes alike. Flash and Green Lantern, who at this point were Wally West and Kyle Rayner, both have performance issues and assure their respective villains that nothing like this has ever happened to them before. Officer Mike Shore of the Gateway City Police Department suffers a panic attack which is odd because he's usually one of the brave cops on the force. In fact, everyone is feeling off. It's like the entire world suddenly has a mutual case of the blues. Scientists uh, from Star Labs, including Dr. Kitty Rampage Faulkner, detect a low-level background radiation called the Kurtzberg effect. And there are a lot of scenes where people stand around and talk about what's going on. I mean, there's a lot of scenes where people just stand around and talk. Some of these scenes involved High Father and Tachyon of the New Gods. Tachyon is a link to the source and feels the effect more than most. Eventually, the heroes are told by several different people that they are experiencing something called the God Wave. The God Wave is leftover energy of the old gods dying and ushering in the third age of reality. Uh, These are all words, and they are in English. So I hope that that came through. Anyway, this wave of energy passed through the entire universe and in its wake planted the seeds of divinity. The seeds of divinity is a way for comic book writers to say all of the gods that have ever been prayed to or existed, including the one you worship, which means the one you worship isn't 
the one and only god or gods, depending on your belief structure. But we don't want people complaining about that. So we're just going to be as vague as humanly possible about this. So the Roman gods and the Greek gods and god-god and all that, yeah, they all came from this god ape. Then the wave hit the end of the known universe and bounced back. On this pass, they created the energy sources for all of the heroes in the DCU. So the speed force comes from the god wave. The energy from the Green Lantern Jews, god wave. If there was a problem, yo, this caused it, so check out the hook as the god, god wave revolves it. Now, the wave is back, and this time it's going to crash into the source and destroy everything in the universe. Thinking that this would be a terrible way to end a publishing effort, the heroes of the DCU unite with the new gods to try and stop this from happening. Enter Darkseid, who wants to use the god wave own power. Somehow. They're really vague about that. So while a small group of heroes head into the source with a special mother box that will allow them to keep their powers as long as possible, the heroes are fighting Darkseid's forces. Things go bad for the away team, and they are shot back out of the source, and Tachyon becomes mortal and dies. At this point, everybody is pretty bummed. People on Earthverse continue to lose hope. Given that this is a company-wide crossover, and thus the closest thing comics have to a summer buster, you would assume that everything is solved by one hero valiantly stepping forward and doing something really cool to defeat the god wave. Maybe Tachyon suddenly springs back to life and unloads a wave of energy as Stan Bush's The Touch plays in the background. You got the touch! You got the power! That doesn't happen. No, what saves the day is everybody on Earth and around the universe comes together in one massive prayer circle and sends good vibes out there. Imagine Crisis on Infinite Earths not being resolved by the Golden Age Superman punching the Anti-Monitor, but in the DCU taking part in a galactic version of the Hilltop Coke commercial. I'd like to teach the world to sing. I'd like to buy the world a home and furnish it with love. Grow apple trees and honeybees and snow white turtle doves. I like to teach the world to sing. Sing with me. saves everything. everything goes back to normal dark side and several other cosmic beings that were trying to take advantage of the god wave become one with the source wall and life goes on the end see that wasn't so bad <laughs> what, what is the question oh. rachel okay um if the wave supposedly created all the superheroes in the universe wouldn't they all be created at one time when the wave went by? How are people created a different... How are it, it, it created gods, and then when it came back, it was to a lesser extent. So and created superheroes, right. But, 
not all superheroes were born right it, it created the energy that created those heroes like the speed force which the which creates yeah but but like kryptonians didn't come you know it, it, it didn't give the yellow kryptonians abilities for the yellow sun did it alter their dna so that if they're gonna go to a place with the yellow sun they get that <laughs> that makes no sense okay the thing, the, the thing or, you have to understand is that nothing makes sense about this story. Or nothing. You will find no explanations. I know it hurts your head, but you're going to... But this doesn't... It's okay, Rachel. I think I just broke something. What's worse, this or the mermaid explanation? I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you when I heard that. Okay. I said that before, and now I just... Stella has a question. What's What's worse, this or the mermaid thing? This. Oh, okay. wow. At least I can kind of believe in mermaids, because you have Aquaman and everything. So, you know, I can kind of say that where there could be mermaids out there. This is just a wave came by and created all the superheroes. So did, did it, like, somehow magically create all the, the lantern rings? The or, energy that the lanterns use. Yeah, okay, it created the energy the lanterns use. Okay, uh, maybe I'll even give you that one. But how did anyone harness this? And aren't there beings that are as old as the universe and the so should they not know this and how do they harness this this makes no sense there are some (laughs) the the way some heroes are created this makes no sense it's okay i'm sorry it's okay (laughs) i just heard it and now i think something's broke (laughs) like satana speaking backwards to make sense how does that seriously how did that affect her speaking backwards to do stuff make her a superhero how did this wave do that how did that energy do that it's okay Rachel and when did it hit <laughs> were there ancient superheroes did they all come at the same time it's okay, I'm sorry. okay. I'll leave you alone to record now okay. it just no I love you <laughs> sorry Stella I hope she, is she gonna be okay yeah, she's going to be fine. So she got that just from your little synopsis. She didn't yes. even read it. She was about as like fervent as if she had just read it in front of her. I know. That's the thing. Even if you describe Genesis to people, Man. they get angry. Well, I want to ask a question about that. It, people, why are people so angry at this story? Why do people talk about it with such vitriol? I, I think there's two answers to that question, and I'm speaking mostly for myself, but I think... I'm also speaking for other people because when I talk to other people, these are the things that I hear the most. One, it's not very good. Uh, when you like, like Final Night, kind of gets uh, a hard time, but I think Final Night's a great story. I think it, I think it has a lot going for it. This doesn't the right like they have the same conversation every issue. Like at some point in an issue, a cosmic being is going to sit everyone down and explain the God Wave to them. And then you're going to have a little box in the letters column that also explains what's going on. So, so you have that. The second, and this is my main problem with it, there are properties out there like Rising Stars, uh, which is a J. Michael Straczynski thing, or Milestone, where the genesis of a superhero universe comes from a common event. Like with Milestone, it's this riot that happens where they use this thing that gives a bunch of people superpowers. John Byrne decided uh, who... I love John Byrne to death. John Byrne is responsible for me being into comics. So you talking to me right now is because of John Byrne. 
So if I he had never done Superman, I don't think I would have gotten into it. John Byrne, though, is a fix-it man. He comes from this generation of comic book creators that wants to connect everything somehow because he's got all the pieces. And what he wanted to do here was say that every superpower in the DC universe comes from a common source. And, and I don't like that. I like that there is a speed force and that there's the Green Lantern rings and all that kind of stuff. And they're all separate. I don't need them to have a common origin. And I think deep down on a subliminal level, there are people that hate this because John Byrne is telling them that their God was created by a wave of energy and was not the creator of the universe. So I think there's maybe a little of that going on. But mostly it's it's because he's trying to connect dots that were never intended to be connected. And that's that's where I think the vitriol comes from. It's it's forgettable. It's a forgettable story. I read it when it came out. And until I reread the first issue, I remembered nothing about this story. So what did you think of it? <laughs> yeah, so this was my first time reading it. And I wasn't sure what to expect, I think, un- until I – well, actually, I thought it was like a dark side story because I think I just had seen cover the cover to issue number mm-hmm. three. And so I thought, okay, what's this going to be like? And then the introduction uh, with the new gods, I don't have too much of a relationship with them. I think the greatest amount of time I've spent with them was probably on the Justice League animated show, as well as maybe some issues with them. And, of course, you know, issues with Darkseid and everything. So this was a little out of my wheelhouse, uh, to be honest. I don't hate it as much as I think other people do. It's almost on the same level as Final Night for me, actually, which I know Shag is going to be like yelling (laughs) at his iPod right now. But I I will agree that I think Final Night probably has a better execution, and I think overall the story was better. The pacing, I thought, which I think gets into the fact that they talk about the same thing over and over again, and it's a pretty wordy story, uh, more words, Mm -hmm. I think, than, than images, but I felt like the pacing was really slow like the first issue was a really long setup i mean it was basically like the same thing happening to all these different characters like they could have gone through the entire universe and like the same thing is happening i've lost my powers next person oh i've lost my powers and you know and then it it waits until the last issue to reveal that the actual antagonist apparently is aries and then he doesn't actually even have any sort of impact because all of a sudden he's frozen and he's taken down really quickly. So it's more of the image of a threat. I was a little concerned about that because there's all this buildup that, oh, Darkseid's a bad guy. But wait, Darkseid's kind of helping us out. It's actually Ares. It, it, that seemed really bad to me. Um, so it just didn't seem like it was executed well. And, and I was a little disappointed also that the majority of the time is given to the powered heroes you know, mm-hmm. number one, that all of a sudden they've lost their powers. And then number two, these are the ones that are chosen to help out. But I think some of the most compelling moments were when you saw Catwoman, Huntress, and Robin on a rooftop. And they're like trying to get up the nerve to go down and help out. And so it's a bit of a bummer that there's we just focus on all the, non, the depowered, superpowered heroes rather than the the non-powered ones. But I guess the tie-ins were perhaps the purpose of that because when we get to Batman and, well, when we get to the tie-ins that we do, we get to see what happens. <sighs> but yeah, I, I, I also have a question about what exactly happened in the end because there's this image. <laughs> Are you laughing because you don't know? <laughs> but <laughs> there's an image and it's like the, the voiceover or the narrator is saying something like, the new gods understand what is asked of them. And it's this image of like new Genesis and that's its name, right? And Apocalypse 
being yes. combined and then separated. Does that mean mm-hmm. was all life on New Genesis and Apocalypse to short? Like, what is going on in the end? You know, I, I am a fan of the Fourth uh-huh. World characters. Uh, I still need to finish out the original series, but I've read uh, the first couple of months of like New Gods and Forever People and Mr. Miracle uh, and Jimmy Olsen, which is it's just crazy stuff, but it's so good. Uh, the the thing is, is that Jack Kirby, when, uh, by the way, you, you know that Jack Kirby's real name was Kurtzberg, oh, right? Oh, Okay, so that's why it's the Kurtzberg okay. effect. Yeah, there, there's your Easter egg. There's your IMDb. Uh, yeah, see, you uh, are better than IMDb. <laughs> when Jack Kirby created The Fourth World, it was something that he can, he wanted to be kind of like a limited series, like a miniseries. Like, once he was done with him, that was it. But because there is this whole generation and then a generation after that that was influenced by it, everybody wants to take these toys out and play with them. And they did that in the mid-80s. They had a a series called Cosmic Odyssey, which just got a deluxe hardcover, actually. Uh, And that led into a new New God series. And they had a a Mr. Miracle series that was tied into Justice League. And then you had a Forever People miniseries. And then in 95, they dragged it all out again with a New Gods and a Tachylon, who was one of the main characters in here, and a Mr. Miracle series. And eventually... That all got poured into a book called Jack Kirby's New uh, Fourth World, uh, and John Byrne was basically in charge of that at that point. He was the one writing and drawing the characters. So John Byrne, who is a big fan of Kirby and a big fan of these characters, finally had the control to do what he thought should be done with them. And I think what John Byrne proves is that ultimately every Everybody wants to use these characters and no one knows what to do with them. Like Darkseid's the big bad. And then now he's yeah. gone, you know, cause at the end of the uh, series, which I didn't put in the synopsis because it was just like, really, that's your yeah. ending. You know, Ares and those two old gods and Darkseid are now part of the source wall. So once again, I don't know uh, when you when you were talking about Underworld Unleashed. Dark Side was gone then, and now he returned, and now he's gone again. So it's it seems to be the cycle with DC where they bring these characters back, and then maybe tell some interesting stories, and then it's just like no, no, no. We we don't know what to do with them ultimately, and I think Genesis is a good example of that. You know, this was a this was a story that. To me, it feels like a story that John Byrne wanted to do in Jack Kirby's Fourth World, the title, and somebody at DC said, no, we can do an event out of that. Uh, It's kind of like War of the Gods almost, which was supposed to be this Wonder Woman 50th anniversary thing in her own title, and they turned it into an accompanying-wide event, and the crossovers just weren't all that good. Now here, I will say, that the crossovers I remember reading and the ones that we read for tonight – do what you were talking about. They deal with the fact that humanity in general has given up. And what does that do to a society? You know, what does that do to the hero? And Supergirl's issue was really good. I remember enjoying that quite a bit. But, you know, you you have this really deep and meaningful concept that he can't deal with because he's got to deal with all the fighty mm-hmm. fights. So I, it's just so disappointing. It's just like I wanted this to be good. I wanted to reread this 
honestly, seriously, I sat down to reread this and I was like, okay, okay, I'm going to give it a fair shot. I'm going to go in this and this is going to be like one of those things that I hated when I was in my 20s. And now that I'm, you know, over 40, I'm going to look back on it and go, God, that wasn't as bad as I thought it was. And wow, this proved me wrong on that because it was exactly as bad as I remember it being. Do you think it's good that it got it over with in four weeks rather than four months? Oh, yeah. No one would want to sit around for four months with this thing. <laughs> I'm serious. I mean, think about think about crossovers today. Do you do you think that some of the ones that aren't as fondly remembered would be better if they were compressed into a month instead of Civil War Two lasting for sixteen? Years? Is it still going on? Are we part of that yet? I or think is, is this like a crossover? Yeah, that I know, right? So, but no, I just. I think DC was smart when they did these that they kind of had their month, their yearly crossover in one month out of the year and then let all the other titles just kind of do their thing after that. What was the fallout from this story? Like what what happens with these people after this? I wish I could tell you, but I have not read. Okay. I have not read this section. I wasn't reading it then and I have the issues now, but I haven't read it. I know that eventually John Byrne leaves Jack Kirby's fourth world and Walt Simonson comes in and then starts an Orion series that lasts like t- two years uh, into the early two thousands. Uh, cause that, cause that crossed over into Joker's last laugh. Mm. Uh, so um, I think the fallout from, from kind of seeing it in the story is that it kind of created a new paradigm for the new gods to play with, but I don't know ultimately what happened after that. Okay. I assume that Darkseid extricates himself from the uh, the source. Oh yeah, I mean because you know he's part of you know Kara Zor-El coming back to Earth and all that in two thousand four. Mm-hmm. So you know yeah, Darkseid is always going to be one of those characters that no matter how many p- times everybody tries to take him out of the equation, a future writer is going to bring him back because he's just too good of a villain. You know, he is he is a villain that Superman can go toe to toe with uh, and and it'd it be like a really serious fight. Uh, mm-hmm. And Rob Kelly once once described the fourth world characters as Game of Thrones meets oh. Star Wars, where it's this galactic level thing. But it's all this political intrigue of people because there's all this weird stuff going on that's completely awesome, like Desaad, you know, helping to kill Darkseid's mother and because Darkseid's mother had Desaad killed Darkseid's wife and just like all these like, you know, like backstabbing things and people walking through Rose Gardens and stuff like that. So uh, that's a joke for South Park. I apologize. You know, I love these characters. Uh, I consider them spinoffs of Superman because their first appearance was in a Superman title and Superman was kind of, in, he was in the first episode of uh, first episode, first issue episode of the Forever People, uh-huh. and they're always, and especially with the animated series uh, in the '90s, there's always seems to be this link between Superman and these characters. Uh, unfortunately, we did not get classic Superman; we got Electric Blue, yes, which I'm currently talking about over uh, once a week on my blog, Fortress of Alitude, because we're at the 20 year mark of that. But it was still kind of cool to see Superman in this. So uh, I was happy that, that he was a part of it, even though he didn't really play a huge part of it. <laughs> he was not essential. <laughs> no, not as much. But I feel like you can't necessarily have an event without 
without him. That's Underworld true. Unleashed. That's true because it was uh, Mar- uh, bu- 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 Shazam. Yeah, but that is one of those situations where you, he couldn't – Mark Wade couldn't use Superman and ended up with a better ending. Because mm. I like that everyone thought of a Superman and it ended up being Captain Marvel. Yeah. But Superman was off being on trial for the destruction of Krypton. Long story. <laughs> Aren't they all? Were you uh, confused why the Legion was involved here, or do you remember them being time-lost in uh, Final Night? Uh, no, they weren't as bad as the young heroes in Love, which like I see ads for constantly, and I was just like, oh, there they are again. I- I'm going to say I loved that title. Oh, did you really? Was it actually good? It was It was teen romance, and it was a romance superhero book. But isn't, and it aren't was, there just three of them? Isn't that like a... No, there's a bunch of them. Oh, there's a whole team. Okay. It was... It, in 97 was this really kind of weird time for DC Comics mm-hmm. because they started throwing things at the wall to see if it stuck. You had... You know how like a lot of characters these days... Uh, if they're going to be a young female character, they're going to be in a rock band. Like you got Black Canary right. and her yeah. big makeover was that she was in a rock band, and Spider Gwen uh, is in a, it was in a rock band. They they had a a, a young grunge type rock band called Scare Tactics, oh. and they were a thing. And you had Major Bummer, who was this it was such a weird title, and Zero and Resurrection Man. And all these, like, really, like, DC was really trying different genres within the superhero world. Mm-hmm. And Young Heroes in Love was their attempt to do it. You know all those, you know that crappy romance comic that uh, Tom made you read? Oh, boy, do I. Okay, so that's the zeitgeist they were tapping into with that book. It still seems like a ridiculous idea. <sighs> it was cute. I'll send you some. You can read, like, the first couple of issues. And i you. Idea. And you'll get an idea because, uh, I, like I said, I, I bought the first like 10 or so issues of that book because I thought, ooh, this could be kind of cool. And I got kind of sucked into the characters. Yeah. So, A lot of the ads that I've been reading or seeing seem like very ridiculous. And I'm glad that I maybe wasn't reading comics at the time because uh, especially that Hawk and Dove Oh my god, that was like, such a bad She's <laughs> like a military woman and then he's got some sort of bass guitar. Yeah, which isn't even a bass guitar. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> yeah. That was one of the misfires. That was it looks again true. they were trying they they were trying to do something different and it just failed mm-hmm. on every conceivable level. <laughs> but I have this weird nineteen ninety seven of my single life before I met Rachel. Mm-hmm was my best single year. Uh, I had the same job all year long. I had a consistent schedule. I had friends and I had comics and we would go to the movie, you know, me and my friends would go to the movies and stuff. And, you know, just all this kind of cool stuff happened. And I, uh, financially I wasn't doing well, but I wasn't, you know, like dirt poor. So it's, it's just kind of like one of these things where, it was the one like solid year of my, you know, before meeting Rachel that everything seemed to be stable. And because of that, I think I look at the comics from that time period as being a little, (sighs) probably I'm looking through it with rose tinted glasses. Mm. Like if I reread some of these books, they would be terrible. And maybe young heroes in love is one of those books but I remember buying it and liking it. Mm. 
I hope I can say the same about Superboy and the Ravers. So yeah, that's about as terrible as uh, I don't know Hawk and Dove looked. Um, it was better than Hawk and Dove okay. because it was written by Carl Kessel, but uh, it wasn't the best of books. Back to Genesis. I sorry. No, I'm used to your musical. This should be a fun episode to uh, edit, so I can. Put in some musical uh, things here. In Genesis number three, High Father has all of a sudden been killed off, but it happens in off-panel land. Do you know mm-hmm. when this happens? And don't you think that something this big should have happened in the main title? Yes, uh, I. If I had to take a guess, and maybe, maybe I should have dug out all of the crossovers to this and read them. Why? Well, that's going above and beyond, sir. But I didn't. So. I can't answer that question. Okay. I'm sorry. That's okay. I'm letting you know. Well, can you answer that? What about the second one? Do you think that that should have happened in the main book and not? I think it should have happened, happened in the main book. I, I think if if I had to guess, it probably happened in Jack Kirby's Fourth World, mm. which DC One Million does this too, where like one of the important chapters is the JLA crossover of DC One Million, mm-hmm. but Grant Morrison was writing all of those titles. So he wrote DC 1 million and he was writing JLA at the time. Mm. So it makes sense that with John Byrne that he would have something like that happen so that people would buy that book. Uh, but yeah, I was a little confused too. It's like, when did High Father die? Yeah. What the heck is going on? Yeah. And again, I think that's one of the things is that you can't read this on its own and enjoy it. Mm. You need everything. Like, yeah. You can read Underworld Unleashed, those three issues by themselves. Yeah. And it's a pretty good story. Final Night, I know you didn't like as much, but that's a pretty cohesive story from beginning to end. Yes. Like, all of the major things that happen in that book happen in that book, except for the Parallax. And even the Parallax special is superfluous. Mm-hmm. Because all that is is Hal walking around going, oh, I remember my life. <laughs> <laughs> I reread it recently for some research. But I, I think I think that was a misstep of this, is that we didn't get, like, a full story. And maybe John Byrne did that on purpose, and in which case, that was a major miscalculation on his part. What do you think of Ares popping in? And Because for the most part, we were all in sort of the pantheon of Kirby's new gods and, you know, Dark Side mm-hmm. and everything. But all of a sudden, we bring in a, a different type of god, which I can understand the god wave. But what do you think about Ares' presence? I think that is everything to do with the fact that John Byrne was writing and drawing Wonder Woman at that time. Okay. And Wonder Woman was dead or in a coma because she dies and becomes the goddess of truth yeah. during his run. And Donna seems out of sorts at this point, too. And you got you got her mother running around because her mother becomes Wonder Woman for a very brief period of time and then goes back in time and becomes the Wonder Woman of the JSA. Oh, that sounds not so. confusing at all. <laughs> Again, it was somebody making it was a it was a creator trying to fix something that he saw as a problem. Yeah. The last character I wanted to talk about was uh, Spectre. He seems to pop. He pops up in interesting stories, and I don't know if I necessarily agree with the different things that he does. So in Underworld Unleashed, I actually had a really big problem with him because he accepted the deal, and I felt like him of out of everyone would not have accepted that deal. But here he pops up, and he's actually you know talking to Dark Side and like. Hoping that Darkseid understands what's at stake and everything. Why was Spectre unaffected by 
everything that's going on because, you know, if the God wave, if we can assume that the Christian God was also created in the God wave, I think he also would have been, I don't know, it seems like he would have been affected. And then just like him popping in and sort of creating a little bit of chaos as he slips through the cracks and everything, is it just like, let's randomly put the specter in here? Do you think he actually serves a pretty good purpose in the universe? I, I think in this, uh, I think it's one of those cases where the creators involved assume because it is a cosmic level event that he has to be part of it, but he can't be like an overall part of it. Cause the specter is always kind of a wild card, right. you know, cause he is so powerful. And I noticed when I was looking up uh, the release dates on this, I went over to Mike's amazing world of DC comics <gasps> and he, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Don't you know that, that, that you, your computer's probably infected with the virus. Because okay. Mike over there, who runs that site there, is actually Brainiac. <laughs> oh, okay. I was like, do I need to run malware bytes when I get off the call with <laughs> Ask oh. Jag. I've been talking about this for years now, but no one believes me. <laughs> but um, I noticed that Spectre had a crossover with this. So I'm wondering if that was just the way to bring it in. And, and again, if I had gone above and beyond and read all of the crossovers... I think I would be broken as a human being, but I could answer your question. So you would have had a broken husk of a man uh, guest starring on your show tonight if I had done that. Well, that's so. why I only we I only suggested three tie-ins. Mm-hmm. So I was and they were good. I mean, you, I've already was making you suffer, so I did not want to make you suffer anymore. If they were to, because you know how Marvel, for whatever reason, is all about redoing crossovers to a certain extent, or revitalizing them but you know different it's got the same title but it's a different story like civil war 2 you just mentioned they just wrapped secret wars which took a heck of a long time as well if they were to redo genesis would you get it uh, i would depend on who the creators were and what they were actually going to if they were actually going to do something with it i think there is a good seed of an idea here but unfortunately the only way I would really enjoy it is if they revealed that the God wave didn't in- invent or wasn't the cause of all these things. Cause let me tell you how many people went on so many stories talking about the God wave after this, because I can't, because it didn't happen. Everybody, no one talked about it. <laughs> it was like one of those things that John Byrne, like for a month, everyone's like God wave, God wave, God wave. And then after that, mm, yeah, we're not going to talk about that. it's not like it didn't happen but it didn't happen yeah so you know it's like when they created hyper time uh at the end of the kingdom event in 1998 you know superboy did a hyper time story and then the flash did a hyper time story so they actually kind of tried to carry that on beyond the story you know the, the story that created it the god wave is one of those things that no one talks about do you think if you went up to someone and said god wave they'd know what you were talking about probably not okay or if they're a DC fan, they might punch me in the face oh, well. for making them remember. The Jets, the Sharks, the Jets. <laughs> Could you imagine that? People on the side of the net. When you're a DC fan, you're a fan all the way. Yeah. From your first issue of Superman to your... <laughs> the last issue of Genesis. Would you recommend this to someone? No. Oh, wow. You didn't even, Not at all. You didn't no. even take a breath, sir. No, no. I, if someone was like hey should i read genesis i'd be like if you want to <laughs> it's not one of those things like oh yes you have to read it's 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 non-essential it's not like crisis um yeah. 
or even I would say like Invasion, which is an amazing crossover and my favorite DC crossover ever, actually. It's not DC 1 million, which was a lot of fun. You know, it's not one of those things that changes DC forever, so you have to read it to understand that. It's one of those, hey, we're going to do a crossover this year and never talk about it again. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I've been, as I've been going through with the different Batman crossovers, I've been thinking about which ones are crucial to read and which ones are not. And right now, the only one that I've said is probably not as crucial to read is Legacy. Feel like it, it. While there were certain big moments to it, I felt like perhaps it's not really worth as much as it was. Now they're releasing a new trade paperback. I talked the entire time with Andrew Leyland, and he had this trade, and I did it. In and we were talking about, is it worth the eighty dollars to get a trade offline? Or like, no, it's not worth it. And now they're resoliciting it. <laughs> but you know, going through, I, I, I absolutely agree with all everything you put forth. You know, if you're looking to fall, I guess the history of. The DC Universe and how it changed and everything, I don't think this would be what I would recommend. I would recommend Final Night over this, but this didn't really help me with anything. It perhaps <laughs> made me question more than, you know, answer things. So I don't even know what's going on with the merging of the planets and the unmerging. I don't know what the fallout is of that. So Yeah, because the, the, at one point, uh, New Genesis was completely destroyed. Right, yeah. Uh, at the end of the Hunger Dogs graphic novel in 1984. So you had that, and then somehow the two planets were merged, which we see at the beginning of this, and it's just like, well, how does that work? So I guess the the moral of this story is I finally need to sit down and read all of the New God stuff from the very beginning all the way through Death of the New Gods right before Final Crisis. I don't know if your soul can take it, sir. Um, (laughs) I mean, you already are struggling even putting it in words. Clearly, you're not going to make it and you're going to need some help. You should hire a counselor as you go, like Tom or somebody. Like, okay, I'm reading this today. Uh, What would you give this out of 10? Out of 10, I don't need source walls. I'd give it two. Oh, wow. That's, that's yeah. really low-balling. Yeah, it's, it, it's, I think it goes to the heart of, of, of how much I dislike the story. Mm-hmm. And, and you, know, you know, we've talked about a lot of comics, and, you know, you've heard me dislike some comics, and you've heard me, like, at the heights of certain comics. I think this is one of the few times where we've talked where I've just told you this just completely sucks. Yeah. So uh, the only reason I won't give it a one is because I just don't have it in me because oh. that seems, like, really mean. Yeah. But yeah, I'll give it two. Two source walls. <laughs> I'm going to give it a five. Five source walls. Again, because I'm kind of on the fence there. But I feel like I don't hate it as much as other people do. I don't think it's very good. I think there are some problems with it. But there were some interesting moments. I'm trying to think of which ones were interesting. Uh, but no, I, you know, <laughs> perhaps the tie-ins are actually what's bringing it up for me. Because I actually do think for once in an event, the tie-ins were worthwhile. So mm-hmm. that, that might be uh, what, what brings it up for me. But I'll, I'll go with the five, five, five out of ten source walls. So let's talk about the source. Or sorry, let's talk. Let's talk about the source wall. Uh, let's talk about the tie-ins, and we're only going to cover three of them. The first one, or I guess two of them, came out 
in week two of this crossover. It was, and this was what started it all, frankly, was Azrael 34, run, angel, mm-hmm. run. <laughs> uh, writer Dennis O'Neill, penciler Vince Giorano, inker James Pasco, and colorist Demetrius Bazookas. Azrael meets one of Darkseid's parademons, and I have a question about this guy because somebody asked me a question and I had no idea what he's talking about. And this guy, this parademon, challenges him to a fight. And it's interesting because as it progresses, the parademon can't speak any English, and that's broken English, and then he's got some, like, jargon involved. It was pretty interesting to see that. Azrael hopes to basically not fight him at all because he's fearful of losing, so that's sort of the connection, I think, with Genesis. I felt like this one was devoid of Genesis a little bit, or at least the most divorced of Genesis than the other tie-ins that we read. So he's continually running away from the parademon. And then Azrael actually ends up helping a homeless boy on his way to Gotham City. His father has rejected him. And when he witnesses this, Ezra starts crying tears of sympathy. And the parademon chooses to abandon his pursuit because he perceives compassion as a trait of a weak soul. And in this... Azrael has a woman he has met up with a couple times on the street, and her name is Galinda, and apparently she's a witch, and I guess she's a good witch, too. I read Azrael very spottily, so I'm not really sure this is very out of context for me, but Oracle actually does appear, so she's helped him out a couple times in the past. He calls her up, and he basically needs the information to find the boy's father, and she's able to easily help him. Uh, and they have a nice back and forth. Just You can tell that they're comfortable with each other because she makes a mm-hmm. joke of, of course, you know, I can tell that it's who it is from your voice and everything. The interesting thing about that is that she seems unaffected by Genesis, which is why I think this issue overall, besides him not wanting to fight, seems like it could have just happened at any time. I didn't really feel as much of an effect from the Genesis crossover as as others but i i thought it was actually comedic it was an interesting story just the funny things that were happening that you wouldn't really expect to be happening during genesis but probably the weakest of the tie-ins of the three that i read yeah i i i really enjoyed the first 25 issues of asriel because denny o'neill seemed to have a story to tell and then after that i think the title just kind of meandered uh this is a good example of that where it's entertaining I mean, the dialogue with Linda is good. I like him talking to the kid. You know, the the whole thing with the parademon going from not being able to speak English yeah. to, like, basically being British by the end of it, it, it seemed like. It, it's all very Denny O'Neill. This strikes me, I don't have any evidence of this, but this strikes me as, hey, Denny, you're one of our big editors. You're writing this title, so your title's going to be part of this crossover. And him going, fight, <laughs> fights a parademon. <laughs> so... But yeah, Oracle, I think Oracle, to a certain extent, probably doesn't have as many problems with Jean Mm -hmm. because she wasn't really hip deep in him being crazy. Right. You know, like like Dick was Mm -hmm. uh, and Tim Tim, was. But to her, he's just one of Batman's people. Mm -hmm. So she's going to treat him like that. That's how I always kind of took it. And I and I like the fact that she called him a choir boy. Yeah. And all that. I. I really liked reading this. I, I liked reading the issue, and I was—I actually was affected when the kid's father rejected him. Oh, that yeah, because yeah. I haven't read this in years. I back in two thousand three, I started reading every Batman issue from four hundred one all the way up to two thousand and two, 
uh, all the books from 2002. So I, I went through all of them. When I say all of them, I mean Catwoman, Nightwing, Huntress, Azrael, like all of the Bat books. And I didn't remember this one that much, but it was a Genesis tie-in, so that's not to be surprised. That's not a surprise. The reading, and I'm like, yeah, I remember. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's like it, it doesn't stand out to you, but it doesn't stand out to you in a negative way either. Mm-hmm. Like, like if you were reading this as part of the run and you're following John Paul's story, it's probably a really like fun little diversion and. As a crossover, though, it doesn't really deal with the main series outside right. of him fighting a period. Yeah. yeah. Do you – so the question that somebody asked because I posted a picture of this issue and said this – the issue that started it all, which no one would really know what that means except for probably you and Shag because, I mean, the issue that started this, this pain that we've been doing uh, or going through – he asked if this was just a parademon or the parademon that appears in Secret Six, apparently. And I wondered if you had any knowledge. Oh of this. wow, is it? I don't. I don't know. And I went on DC Wikia, and it just said one of Dark Side's parademons, so it didn't give a specific title to him I'd, or name. I'd have to reread Secret Six to see if if Gail Simone tied him in. Mm-hmm. That seems like something she would do, but I don't have any direct evidence of it. I get. I could tweet her, but I don't know if she would respond. <laughs> Rereading it, Genesis tie-ins, did you? Yeah. I don't know. That'd be interesting. <laughs> Again, those are words, and they are in English. Oh, my but goodness. Yeah. <laughs> stringing them together like that, it's like, huh? Do you think she would know what it was? She would, don't you think? Yeah, she's she's a pretty big fan. I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. Okay, so I, I think unless you really feel a desire to rate these, I guess we'll just talk about them and move on. Unless do you think they deserve a rating? Um, I'd give this an eight out of ten. Okay, I think I would probably agree with you. I, I would give my wife. My wife just texted me asking me if the God Wave killed Batman's parents. Oh gosh, well it might have killed this little boy's parents. I was like, the his whole story was super sad because his mom just got up and left. Yeah. Like, like his entire family is a piece of crap. (laughs) So the next one was a little bit better. Not as, well, I I, I was about to say not as uplifting, but actually it does have some positive (laughs) things that happen. So this was Batman, again, week two, Batman 547, Dark Genesis, writer Doug Mensch, penciler Kelly Jones, and you can tell, and inker John Beatty, colorist uh, Gregory Wright and Android Images. So the, you can clearly tell that Genesis is happening. Uh, Commissioner mm-hmm. Gordon is tempted to start the bat signal, but he knows that it just would be futile. Batman tells a depressed Oracle not to give up and to have faith, and he tells her to use the tech to somehow get the word out that there are people that are still fighting. When they turn off the call, she's like, oh, what point? You know, I'm in this chair, but wait a minute. And she sort of gets up the the... The courage, I guess, and the tenacity to actually send out something. We don't really see what happens. Alfred's worried about Batman, and it seems like Alfred is even going to be there when he gets back. But he tells him not to worry, and when Batman leaves the cave, Vesper Fairchild calls, and the two of them comfort each other and talk to each other. And then for the most part, I would say... When Bruce is away, Alfred will play. My goodness. Yeah, I guess Vesper's going for for the older man. And then the majority of the issue, I would say, focuses on Harvey Bullock and Renee Montoya. 
they're the only members of the major crimes unit that's available when a call comes in and Bullock answers and there's a desperate man who's on the other side of the line and he's taken some hostages and he's pointing a gun at them and he basically wants to talk on the phone while he gets it done. And so Bullock is tracing the call and he just continues to talk with the man. And it's a really great conversation about, you know, Mm -hmm. don't let the evil and the, like, let's not let the man kind of, you know, get us down like the bad man. You need to, like, stand up and and spit in the face of of whatever is going on and, and put the gun down, basically. And so everyone, because he's been talking on the phone for a long time, the rest of the major crimes unit, or at least, I guess, the GCBD with Rene Montoya, arrive, and the man actually does put down uh, the gun and he walks outside and he's taken in and then as a small segment there's also batman who is overhearing talk about a suicidal woman on top of the building and she's sort of talking about her daughter and she almost slips off but he catches her and um he tries to instill hope in her as well saying that you know this feeling of despair is is going to leave soon and at the very end uh which is always sad to see her now sarah essen <laughs> comes <laughs> to talk to jim of course her husband and uh, the two of them embrace and and they're just thinking about all the people who are struggling to make a difference during this time of genesis and so uh, batman wishes good luck to all these people who are fighting the great evil uh so this lots of stuff going on but i thought not only does it tie in really well with genesis because i think it shows the impact of you know i guess the main purpose of this crossover was to like what happens you know a final night was what happens if the world ends the genesis is perhaps what happens if the world loses hope. Loses hope. Yeah. yeah. And you know what happens. And like I said with Genesis, we, we focus on all of these powered superheroes who now no longer have powers. But what happens to the normal everyday people? And just wonderful moments. And, and I think, you know, Batman, of course, it's his title. But I really love the Bullock scenes. Just that whole conversation and really framing that entire issue. I think it, this one, I think, really gets to the heart of like what Genesis could have been maybe if done correctly. I think this was just a wonderful time. I loved this issue. I um, I am now I am easier on Kelly Jones's art than I was years ago uh, because now I just recognize that okay, this is just his visual take on Batman. It's not necessarily to my liking, but it's not bad. Uh, except for the woman being naked when she falls off the building. Uh, that was kind of a weird. Yes, yeah, I wondered. I couldn't tell if she was naked or not. So. She wasn't. She was wearing the thing, but in that one panel, yeah, she was kind of uh, a little bit nude. Um, <laughs> she lost it. Uh, I, I'm sure Shag would say she's hot. Yeah, I bet but, so. You know, I'm with you. It was the Bullock scene that really got me. I, I love there. He's like, you know, do you feel that gun in your hand? It feels heavy, doesn't it? it feels like it should have beyond there. Yeah. We should never have even invented these things. And I'm not. And I don't think that's the writer saying that guns are bad. I think that's Bullock trying to talk this guy down and saying anything he could to try to get him to put the weapon down. Like, and that's a good way to get into somebody's head. The bar, the the barber scene was nice. Um, You know, I always like seeing Pabs. So uh, I'm a fan of the character, obviously. (laughs) And, um, but no, I agree with you. It was, it was Harvey Bullock was really the hero of the story. Because he was the one that talked this guy out of shooting somebody. And it's it's kind of weird. Usually when we deal with crime in Gotham, it's somebody holding somebody up and they're evil. Mm. 
And this guy's just like, tell me why I shouldn't shoot this person. And it's like, holy crap. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> That's <laughs> OK. This is game on. This is real. So I was really glad I read this. Absolutely. Because I, I read it today at lunch, and I'm like, wow, that's that's a really uplifting issue. Mm-hmm. And again, it ties into what Genesis was somewhat about. Yeah. It's just like finding the hope and hopelessness. Yeah. And I'd like to think that, you know, Alfred and Vesper hooked up for a night and then just never oh wanted to talk gosh. about it again. Oh my gosh. What a bizarre turn of events. My wife just texted me asking me if the God Wave created the Condiment King. Oh, oh, but the Condiment King is amazing. Can you text her back and say that Condiment King is great? Uh, Apparently Condiment King is great. Does Uh, she know that Killer Moth is my favorite supervillain? Well, villain. I think she knows. She just knows Condiment King from Batman Lego 3. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Have you seen Lego Batman, by the way? No, I have not seen it Okay, Michael Bailey, you need to go and see that. Everyone's telling me that. Tom Pan Pan was telling me that oh, today. Man. I think, and Rachel would love it too. I think. Yeah, we're, we're, we want to see it at some point. Okay. We may go for my birthday around my birthday okay. since that's next week. What would you give this grade? Oh, I give this a ten. Okay. Yeah, I think. Whoo, pretty close. Maybe a nine point five. Mm. Yeah. It's maybe it's really more. close to a perfect issue. Yeah. Uh, oh, absolutely. Yeah. The thing about Oracle because she does appear in this, which Shag didn't tell me about that. He only told me about you know, <laughs> Ezreal thirty four. So. Take that, Jack. Is that part of Oracle is like, would actually, that's her normal character, you know, being down on herself and like, I'm in this chair still. But, you know, her desperation of not wanting to like, what can I do, at least is is very Genesis related. And then, of course, I kind of wanted that thread to continue. I guess, you know, she's too minor a character in this and you, you want to focus more on Bullock. But it would have been interesting to see like... How does she contact it out, you know? Or could there have been, like, a little montage of she's sending out to communicators and then you see a bunch of different heroes check and be like, you're not alone, keep fighting the good fight, you know? Which would be nice, mm-hmm. like, little teases or Easter eggs of different people that she's worked with, like Firestorm or Firestorm, Sea Shack, things like that, so. Okay, and then the last one took place that we're covering. The last one is during week four, and it was Robin number 46, Dark at Dawn. Writer Chuck Dixon, penciler Cully Hamner, inker Sal Buscema, and colorist Adrian Roy, who's, isn't that the lady who's been it on most comics then or the most yeah, yeah more <laughs> more batman else. comics than uh, trivia on the wiki said that apparently this is number 85 on wizard's list the 100 best single issues since you were born so we can debate whether or not we agree with that or not Okay, so this is, of course, this is Robin. So Batman and Robin are dealing with Genesis and Gotham, so I guess, you know, you can debate how this continuity works together if Batman's also doing his thing over in 547. Uh, But there is a major crime wave, and (laughs) Batman and Robin are 
taking down an overweight military nut named Mackie, who is shooting bullets indiscriminately. And Batman later asks how Robin got out of the house because apparently he's grounded. And Robin explains that he snuck out while his dad uh, is on a business trip. And then Robin is, is very much a Debbie Downer in this particular issue because he's sort of asking what's the point of this uh, when the world is ending? Why are we dealing with this you know, individual guy or any individual guy? And Batman is saying that he's not in this fight because he knows he can win. He's in this fight no matter what. And Robin is basically... Just feeling fatigue. Maybe it's event fatigue. Maybe it's, you know, Batman or Robin fatigue. Who knows? But he's tired of living his life, I think, as Robin. He's tired of living his life as Tim Drake and probably all the lies and everything. And Batman, in his normal, brusque manner, basically tells him he should go home for the night. So Robin gets into the Red Bird. Red Bird controls. And uh, uh, he goes back to Drake Manor. And then we get into the main part. So that's sort of the the preamble or the prologue there. We can see where Robin's head is. And there's another building and something else is going on. The False Face Society are selling some heavy-duty weapons to young L of the Trey Street Samurai. And the deal is interrupted at gunpoint by Sheriff Sissy Chambers and Shotgun Smith. <laughs> I feel like I've wandered into a 60s Batman episode. The criminals shoot their way out of the building. They make their way into the street. There's a chase, and this, of course, is where Robin intersects with them. So he decides to follow them in his car, and he follows the Trey Street Samurai. And they crash into a ditch. It kind of seems like it's a construction uh, site. Robin is running on foot. He easily takes down young L's partners with batterings, and then you just have Robin versus young L in a condemned building. Unfortunately, young L starts shooting at Robin. This causes the building, which is already not in good situation to collapse and he is pinned under ceiling beams in the basement and some water is rising against him and so robin is trying to help him young l continues to threaten him which is super obnoxious and robin's basically like you know if you shoot me then you're gonna die anyways and then he tries to shoot him but there are no bullets anyways so robin is trying to give him some help he actually gives him a rebreather and is like we'll wait until the water rises and then we'll lift this beam off and and you'll be able to get out. And so he notices that young L has lost all trace of his gangster attitude. And now he's just a scared kid. And Robin had known this kid before anyways. And so now he's actually taken death seriously and Robin is helping him. And then some bad things happen and basically young L is submerged underwater. The rebreather's not there. The beam shifts onto his lungs so he can't use the, uh, the rebreather even if he had it. Robin actually tries some mouth-to-mouth underwater. That doesn't work and it actually ends up that he dies. So Robin goes outside. You can tell that he's pretty beat up about this and sad. And the shotgun guy, what's his name? Shotgun. Shotgun Smith. Yeah, Shotgun Smith. He tells him not to beat himself up over this, you know, because these things happen. Uh, but Robin tells him that he's heard enough cheap words and false sentiments for one night, all of them coming from himself. Because, of course, he was trying to sort of turn young L uh, from this hard knock path to, to a better one. Uh, and so that's where we end, whereas we ended the previous one on a high and happy note, kind of. This one is very much a downer note that uh, there was no hope to begin with and it brought someone down and then Robin 
sort of was able to regain hope, tried to instill it in another, but then it backfired on him, and then he lost it again. So this was sort of, I guess, really beating you when you're down kind of genesis effect. Yeah, and it was a, it was a nice tie-in if you've been following the Robin series, especially after Zero Hour and the stuff that Chuck Dixon did with that with the character. You know, he mentions that Young Al killed one of Robin's classmates, Carl, yeah. who was his Flash Thompson, for lack oh. of a better term. He was kind of a jock that he he didn't pick on Tim, but he picked on Tim's friends. Because Tim was always kind of in that weird, like, he got along with everybody pretty mm-hmm. much. So he didn't have anybody picking on him. But there was a, a couple issues where Carl was... Were, tried to get Tim to join him in a gang, oh. essentially, because there was all of these black people coming into the high school, <laughs> and it was a it was a, a criminal criminal element. And he he had a gun. He got his dad's gun at one point, and he and kid read the the kid in this whose name is escaping me, even though you said it a thousand times, young and I just L. read this. Uh, young L, they face off, and Young L shoots him dead. So this is kind of like the comeuppance of that. And what I, this is going to sound really weird, but I want you to stay with me for a second. I like the fact that young Al died at the end because it's how this story should have ended. And I'm a big fan of when stories end the way they should have. If Tim would have saved him, I don't think this issue would have any impact because then it's just a, Oh, everything's fine. No, this is, everything's not fine. You know, Tim has to learn and he's learned, you know, through various points. But this is one of those points where Tim learns that he's not going to he's not going to save everybody. He's going to try. And it's one of those things where he comes out on the other side of the Genesis wave, not because he suddenly finds hope, but because he realizes what a jerk he was being. And uh, I really liked that. I I, kind of liked how Dixon was able to do that. Uh, but I'm a fan of Chuck Dixon's yeah. writing, so. And I think it it is good to have at least one. And again, you know, I've not read all these tie-ins, so I can't really say, but that you can tell that the stakes are real, and they're hot, you know, mm-hmm. and, and not everyone is going to get off scot-free. And there are going to be some good tales where some people can be turned around or people will be saved. But I think there are also some real-life things where not everyone can be saved. And yeah. And, and, and Young L, here's the thing. Young L was going to die at some point. Yeah. The life he was living, he, unless there was like a three ghosts on Christmas Eve style intervention, I don't think he was going to come out on the other side of that. You know, he was he was in a gang and he was dealing weapons and that kind of life gets you killed. And if he wouldn't have done Like if you go through the issue and watch what he does, if he didn't do this, if he didn't do this, if he didn't do this, in the end, Young L got himself killed. I mean, he was threatening to shoot Robin the entire time Robin was trying to help him. Yeah. So I think on some level, Robin realizes that, but he really wanted to save him because that's what Batman taught him to do. So that's why, you know, Wizard Magazine is absolutely right. This is one of the greatest done in ones of, of the 90s. Because it is so emotional. I love this cover. You know, it's this mostly white cover where Robin is over the body of a of young Al, obviously. And there's the copy of, and then there are those times when the universe is cold and cruel, when there is neither joy nor hope. And I'm like, holy crap, Chuck, kick me in the face while you're at it. 
it was just, oh man. It's like, I liked this as much as I liked the Batman one for completely different reasons. Yeah. Well, yeah, because they're completely different. Do you think he was a little whiny at the beginning, Robin? Oh yeah, okay. God yes. Okay. He was. He was completely. He was. He was. He was mainlining the God okay. wave. Okay. Depression. Yeah. So. Because it just seemed like wah wah, you know. But clearly, which I can totally see Batman kind of being annoyed because clearly everyone has this bad attitude and. Maybe he thinks Robin should be doing better. I think, honestly, he sent him home not only because he was sick of, you know, in the whining, but I think also he knew that this type of attitude could get him killed. That's very true. He's just like, you just need to go home. And it's it's Batman benching him, but not because he's angry or that Robin disobeyed Mm -hmm. him. It was, I saw it as an act of compassion. (laughs) Such good stuff. Man, now I want to read sound like shag now. Now I want to just go and read all this. Which is so interesting, though, that the tie-ins are so much better than the main series because that rarely happens. I think you can't say that all tie-ins are bad, but I think that they're for the most part, sometimes it seems like, why? Why do I have to read this tie-in right now? But I think overall these were worthwhile, and, and I would have chosen to read these tie-ins over the main series any day. Here is here is the the formula, so to so to speak. If you have a really solid main Mm -hmm. story, like like I'll go back to invasion, then the tie-ins are just side dishes. Like you have a really good main course, but man, they're bringing out that fried zucchini and the calamari and all that kind of stuff, and you're like, this oh, this is great. When the main dish is very bad. Sometimes you depend on the appetizer or the French fries or whatever to kind of get you through. And I think what DC has in most cases, if they have a terrible main story, you will love the crossovers because they give you something that you're missing from the main story. And it was the same with Zero Hour. I like Zero Hour. Zero Hour's crossovers are better than Zero Hour itself. Mm. So it's almost like you give the idea to a bunch of different creative people, and if the main guy drops the ball, then they come in, pick it up, and carry it to the touchdown. And this is these are three very good examples of yeah. that. Or even Asriel, which is tangentially involved, right. in, <laughs> uh, in was still like, oh, well, that's a good. Well, that's a good read. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, you feel bad for Absolutely. that kid. And, you know, Denny O'Neill made you feel something. Th- that issue reminded me a lot of his question uh, run from 87. Mm-hmm. Because there were a lot of stories like this where normal people come in contact with the hero. And it's just, it's like awful and real at the same time and really compelling. What would you give the Robin 46 issue? I'm going to give it a 10. I'm going to give it a 10 too. I'm going to, you know, like, like just for completely different yeah. reasons, but I have trouble giving Chuck Dixon anything under a 10. <laughs> well, you, you've really pigeonholed yourself or put yourself in a hole. I hope he never writes something bad. Cause you'll just give it a 10 and everyone will be led astray. Um, <laughs> though knowing Chuck Dixon, he probably won't. I, I give it a nine. I think I, I liked Batman 547 a little bit more. Um, I was a little put off by Robin's attitude at the beginning. I think that's the only reason why I, I take it down. And I didn't really like the art. Cully Hamner is a good artist. He's also a hell of a nice guy, by the way. I've oh. met him on several occasions at Dragon Con, and he was a super nice guy. He drew a series called Green Lantern Mosaic in the early 90s 
which was this really kind of off the wall Green Lantern story with John St- series with John Stewart, and I really liked his art on that. I think the problem with his, this issue of Robin is that he is following people like Tom Grummet and Mike Rowingo and Stan Walk uh, and those types. Uh, I forget the other guy that that all had like a really clean type style, and he's got kind of an off the beaten path type yeah. style. So I think that may be where your disconnect is there. But I, I totally understand it. I'm not trying to convince you otherwise. Uh, I'm just saying, for me, I was able to overcome that because I'm familiar enough with his work. Final question on this, and then we will move on and, and really wrap up this segment here. When do you think this happens? Do you think this is before the rooftop? I was going to say tryst, but it's not a tryst. Meetup between him and Helena and Catwoman, or do you think it's after? I think it's after, because he's he's just kind of feeling the after effects of it. Okay, just wondered. So I, I messaged Shag. I figure what we started with Shag, why not end with Shag? Nice little ring composition. Uh, and I said, have anything to say to defend yourself tonight? Because I want to give him a chance, you know, since he's not here to defend himself. And he says, what the heck? And then gives a couple exclamation points and question marks. Is it really my fault you are an easy mark and I goaded you into covering Genesis? Seems you were the weak one here. Smiley emoji. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Oh, boy. Uh, I mean... We'll have to have some words next month. His name is irredeemable. It's there in the name. The fact, maybe we are the fools for thinking he would feel some guilt over this when he obviously is laughing at our pain. We're like the pain robot on Teen Titans Go. Oh, no. Yes, pain, pain. Pain, pain. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, goodness. Pain, all I know is pain. Not being here drives me insane. All the joy I've known gone down the drain. Final question, and then I'm going to ask, you know, of course, where listeners can find you. And I've been asking this of of everyone, really, who's come on, even people who don't. Actually, I, oh, no, yeah, I even did the Sutherlands. Are you Team Shag, or are you Team Donovan? Oh, wow. You know, you, weren't on. you asked yeah, me. Th- you weren't on when I started this, so it's your turn. Yeah, I've been hearing you ask this question, and <laughs> up until this yeah, moment, I, about I was going to ask. I you. was like, "Man, I have to go with Team Shag," but Uh-oh. I think I think I'm still going to say Team Shag, but only for one reason. It's not, I mean, I got nothing but love yeah. for Don. Don and I, man, we did DC versus Marvel, and that Which was some of the most fun I've ever. Genesis book for. Yeah, 
I mean, I, we just, we just, you know, Don and I get together and we, we don't always see eye to eye, but we always come out of it like shaking hands. And, you know, like we, we sat down after Batman V Superman yeah. and, and had that, that, that kind of, wow, on both of our sides, we, we need to come together over <laughs> this because it's about to get ugly. Um, so it's nothing that's done. I will only say team yeah. shag because he brought us together to do this okay. episode. And it was worth it to talk Aww. to you. How about that? Oh, nicest thing ever. I mean, I might make a dubstep of you. Are you going to be okay with that? <laughs> yeah, I'm going to be okay with that. Because you said Pan Pan, and I kind of had like the feeling of uh, doing something. Yeah, with Pan Pan. I actually, yeah, Tom is quickly learning to not trust me because he said something ridiculous in this new podcast that he started, Required Reading. And I decided to, because it was so ridiculous, I decided to make a dubstep. And that was the first thing I edited of the whole episode, and I sent it to him. <laughs> see, 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 here's the thing, is that, you know, you, you have an interesting dynamic with, with Tom and with yeah. Shaq. And, and I look at you and Tom as brother uh-huh. and sister. I yeah. really do. Uh, in fact, when I watch Gravity Falls, oh, Mabel. I, I'm really watching, you know, you and, and Tom yeah. and, and, and not those characters. And, and, and to keep this going, you know, Shag is kind of Grunkle Stan. <laughs> um, oh, no. I kind of wanted to be, but, but I realize there's a different dynamic there. So I realized that Shag is like the older brother that went to college when you guys were still oh, kids. Yeah. And then you and Tom were kind of not closer in age, but closer in age. I'm like the cousin that y'all get to see, you know, two or three times a year that we all get along. So I'm kind of like Grunkle Stan's okay. brother almost. Okay. Oh. Yeah, I'm Stanford. Yeah, Rachel just said it. So, so that's where I think I fit in this. Are dynamic. you sure you're not um, Little Gideon? You will soon. I'll say, oh, it came true. What? I'm not impressed. You're impressed. Hit it, Dad. just not yeah. like that. And two, <laughs> You're not a creeper with big hair? Yeah, I'm not a creeper with big hair. That's exactly what You know, what it's funny you brought up that. Gravity Falls. I'm glad that you did that because when you were talking about that big prayer circle that the heroes were in, it reminds me of the very end of Gravity Falls where like they each have their special mm-hmm. symbol and they stand in their little spot and are holding hands. I'm like, that's Gravity Falls! 
Yeah. Best, one of the best top five towards the top of top yeah. five best animated series of the last <sighs> decade. Yeah. Like writing wise, humor wise, like everything fired on all cylinders. And now every time I see Mabel, I think of you, which means that I kind of think of you when I watch Bob's Burgers as well, because she's the voice of one of the kids on Bob's Burgers. The one so there's that. that. Funny ears? Okay. Yes. Yeah, she's she's an odd woman, but I like her. She was, <laughs> <laughs> but no, but so uh, no, it's always good to talk to you. Oh, so I will I will absolutely. say yeah, and and I agree. And it's been to May. We can't let that happen again. But I'm hoping. Well, mm-hmm. I've got you down for DC one million, and then we'll see mm-hmm. if I can force your hand into anything else. And actually, we're getting close to um, No Man's Land, and I kind of want to divide it up for like different sections or different people and i know mm-hmm. how much you love that and i owe my, all my trades to you because you were generous enough to send <laughs> and that was what first what i first read so you're definitely going to be on the list for that so i appreciate yeah. that yeah i have the i have the new ones now i was buying yeah, them slowly yeah. well so. um this is the time in the segment where i like i'm silent for five minutes as you tell everyone how they can find and support you. So I, I'm sure you've got this prattled off. I was amazed with uh, Ruth and Darren Sutherland because it's like this well-oiled machine, how they talk about their shows, and it's like a little snip. It was wonderful when I was listening to them. So how can people listen to you? Where can they find you? Uh, views from the long box at viewsfromthelongbox.com. It is bi-weekly at the moment, uh, about to go monthly because I'm about to start some new shows and kind of start my own little network, the Fortress of Bailey Tube Podcasting Network. Which, uh, But for right now, Views or Longbox is one of the main places. Also, head on over to FortressofBaileyTube.com where I have kind of revved up that machine again. I've got a couple different series going on involving Superman. Uh, I'm celebrating the 20th anniversary of Electric Blue. Uh, which a lot of people dislike, and I'm going back to see if they're wrong or if I'm wrong. Uh, also on that is uh, where you can find From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, which I am about two years behind you right now oh, wow. where you are because we're in 95. We're doing the death of Clark okay. Kent at the moment. So we're about we're going to be doing Underworld Unleashed uh, kind of soonish or sooner rather than later. That is where Jeffrey and I, Taylor and I talk about just about every Superman story published in the post-crisis era. Also on Views from Longbox and Fortress of Bailitude, you can find a link to my Patreon page. Uh, I've started one. Uh, I don't talk about it all that much because I don't want to be one of those people that is just like, you know, like every five minutes, give me money because I kind of feel uncomfortable doing it anyways. Uh, it's just like, I'm, uh, but to kind of build up uh, a reserve so that maybe I can upgrade my equipment and upgrade my internet. And basically like if the computer goes out, I can, you know, go get one right away. And there's like hardly any downtime. Uh, I did start a Patreon page. Uh, there are different levels. Uh, if you, uh, you can give as little as a dollar. Uh, but if you give more than that, you get like special things Two there's two exclusive podcasts that go along with it that you get at certain payment levels so uh again no pressure folks if you don't want to i don't care but i want to mention it because stella gave me kind of an opportunity yeah, to, but I, that's that's pretty that's much it absolutely uh is your batman podcast dead so if you guys have been listening to views from a long box you recently heard andy Leyland and i discuss the year one annuals that were involved with batman 
that was kind of not only me getting that audio finally out there that I recorded two years ago, that was kind of a backdoor pilot because starting in May, Andy and I are going to be doing the Overlooked Dark Knight, which is a uh, it's twice monthly, the 14th and the 28th of every month. And we are going to be looking at the Jerry Conway run of Batman. So we're going to go through his run and then we're going to go through Doug Mensch and lead up to where Chris Franklin and uh, Ryan Daly have picked up with the post-crisis stuff. We're going to be kind of ending there. But the cool thing about this is, is we call it the non-index index show in that we're doing kind of an index, but it's not like a we are covering everything Batman in this era. It's what we want to. So every once in a while, we'll do Brave and the Bold. We'll talk about movies. We'll, you know, we'll, we'll do specials. There's a Batman Hulk crossover Ooh. in the middle of all that. So it's really an excuse for Andy and I to get together and talk about Batman. Uh, but that's launching in May, uh, appropriately enough. Uh, so by the time this episode comes out, you would have heard the trailer oh, and all that. So. Andy, I have an amazing idea. Let's do a podcast. We've been talking about doing this for years. That sounds great. So, what should we talk about? Something no one else is talking about. Batman. <sighs> Mike, there are hundreds of Batman shows out there. You used to do one. True. Well, maybe we could do an index show. Are you insane? We both already host those. True again. Okay, maybe we could talk about Batman stories no one else does. Like the Jerry Conway run. Ooh, ooh, yeah, yeah, we could discuss his entire run and then go into the Doug Mensch run. But we won't be tied down to that. We need to be free to talk about other Batman stories from that era as well. And we could call it The Overlooked Dark Knight, the non-index index show. Great! Uh, I guess we should do a trailer. I think we kind of just did. Yeah, but it's missing something. Like, you should have added music behind us or something. Andy, I have an amazing idea. Let's do a podcast. We've been talking about doing this for years. That sounds great! So, what should we talk about? Something no one else is talking about. Batman. <sighs> Mike, there are hundreds of Batman shows out there. You used to do one. True. Well, maybe we could do an index show. Are you insane? We both already host those. True again. Okay, maybe we could talk about Batman stories no one else does. Like the Jerry Conway run. Ooh, ooh yeah, yeah, we could discuss his entire run and then go into the Doug Mensch run. But we won't be tied down to that. We need to be free to talk about other Batman stories from that era as well. And we could call it The Overlooked Dark Knight, the non-index index show. Great! The Overlooked Dark Knight, the non-index index show. New episodes drop on the 14th and 28th of every month. The show and the website, www.overlookeddarknight.com, launch in May of 2017. From the Fortress of Bailitude Podcasting Network. Well, thank you so much for your time. No, thank you so much. This, you know, despite it being a terrible book, I mean, we got my wife to come in Absolutely. and talk about that it. That was a so, highlight right there. She's going to stay in. I hope she knows that. Uh, she, she, you're, you're staying in. By the way, she's not cutting any of that out. I heard her laugh. So I guess that's an okay. <laughs> yes. It's a thumbs up. That is an I okay. I mean, she said it was worse than the mermaid. That's making progress on your side, at least. 
Well, you know, I think Laurie grows on people. Well, you know, it hasn't grown on me, that super ventriloquism that you tried to explain to me. Oh, it could be worse. <laughs> oh, okay. When I come back, I'm going to be solo, and I'm going to be reviewing Batgirl and the Birds of Prey number 7 and Batgirl number 60 slash 8. But first, it is Zias' Radio Hour featuring something just like this by the Chainsmokers and Coldplay. I've been reading books of old The legends and the myths Achilles and his gold Achilles and his gifts Spider-Man's control And Batman with his fist And clearly I don't see myself upon that list But she said, where'd you wanna go? How much you wanna risk? I'm not looking for somebody with some superhuman gifts Some superhero, some fairy tale bliss Just something I can turn to, somebody I can kiss I want something just like this
Welcome back. I happened upon that song accidentally. I've actually been sort of upset at Coldplay because I feel like their music hasn't been up to the standards that I've sort of put upon them. But then I clicked on this because I've sort of been enjoying the Chainsmokers and, and what they've been putting out. And I thought, wow, look at this. Look at all the superhero themes. So that's why I chose that one in particular for this episode. Well, I'm going to be on my own for these last two books. It's so much fun to to talk to uh, Michael Bailey, and it's just nice reflecting on the friendship that we have. And also, I, I think, you know, one of the reasons why I love podcasting is just the circle of friends that I have and, and the different people that you can branch out and meet. Like, you know, Darren and Ruth Sutherland, I've never spoken to them before, but Shag mentioned them and then I reached out to them and now uh, I feel like they're good acquaintances and, and I'm actually going to meet them in June. We're going to be at the same comic convention, so hopefully our acquaintances can uh, build into something more and just other people as well. I mean, Shag, Shag, who would have thought that I'd be friends with Shag? <laughs> So yeah, podcasting, I think is just, it's great. And, you know, I, I certainly think it's a way to meet different people and get new perspectives on things and also learn a lot too from, from everyone that you meet, which is, I think, true of either digital friendships or real life friendships as well. Well, enough of that. Uh, let's get into these reviews. So first up, we have Backerel and the Birds of Prey, number seven, Soldiers of Fortunes. Writers, Julie Benson and Shauna Benson, artist Claire Rowe, back again, and colorist Alan Pasalacqua. Gotham Science Center. The birds are facing off against Zodiac Master. Yes, that guy who has been predicting disasters which could be prevented, but for a price. The Science Center didn't take him up on his offer, so he robbed it instead. Together, the birds take him down and Huntress's hotel room by accident. Elsewhere, the realtors set off an alarm again at the clock tower, and Babs has finally had enough. Dinah offers Helena a place to stay, which is literally on the floor on top of some uh, old band t-shirts. Babs has come up with a plan that involves Dinah and Helena looking for a property. She gets it set up and has Oracle back them on it while she has a date with her dad. Father and daughter catch up while Helena and Dinah meet with the realtors, who bring them on a magical mystery tour to places once inhabited by the likes of the Riddler, Santo from the previous issues, Penguin, and Catwoman, among others. The realtors give an information and historical packet to new renters, and Babs realizes that she never got one, and there might be a reason why. So she goes to the clock tower and starts some demolition and uncovers a duffel bag filled with gold bars. She radios Helena and Dinah and tells them to bring the realtors to the clock tower, where Babs has a press conference announcing the discovery of the gold and the subsequent donation to the Gotham's Children's Hospital. There goes the retirement fund for the two realtors. Afterwards, the three birds relax with pizza, wine, and chocolate, realizing that it's actually Valentine's Day, and there they are enjoying it with each other and not with various men in their lives if they had them. Next up, warning signs. Well, this is fun seeing Zodiac Master, right? Uh, he's certainly a low-ranked villain. If you don't know this from his history... Perhaps just from watching the Lego Batman movie because he appears in that and remember that 
Joker was gathering all the sort of C and D listers together, and he was a part of that. So I think you can surmise from there he's a low-ranked villain. He was introduced in Detective Comics number 323. And I think for the most part, I mean, overall, this character here, what we see in this issue is certainly a revamp. He's got tattoos on him with the different signs rather than on the costume. But I really feel like it stays with the spirit of the character. He's got the same gimmick where he's threatening – well, he is – foretelling of disasters but it's all a lie to get some money sort of a a reverse protection racket i suppose i i think that this is great again I think the Benson sisters showing their dedication to history, uh, not only of Birds of Prey, but I think of Batman lore in general. I thought it was a fun, quote unquote, sleepover with Dinah, just continuing to live like a rock star and Helena going in thinking that she was going to have a couch to sleep on, but it's just a bunch of band t-shirts. I thought, oh my goodness, how ridiculous. I like the different imaginings of Dinah and Huntress and how they could possibly take down the realtors. There's a different art style for both of them. And of course, the methods match the person, the personality that are thinking of it. Dinah's, or not Dinah, but Huntress is a little heavier than perhaps uh, is necessary. And it involves torture and things like that. It's interesting that Oracle, I guess, is a man after my own heart. He's certainly shipping people together when he hears that Babs has a date, even though it's with her father. He's like, oh, is the ship sailing? And uh, he even mentions Nightwing, which I think is a little jab at me, Benson sisters. And then it's sad, you know, at the end with, with the update, the social media update there. But of course, you know, it's not shipping. But the weird thing about him, which I don't really understand, is that he's stringing along different women, which is random and unsettling. I'm not sure if there's something deeper with this. And it was just a cover for what's been going on secretly on the side. And we're trying to figure out whether we can trust him. But I mean, even at the end, he says he has several Skype dates or whatever. And he's checking out these women so is he I mean again I kind of wonder what his place is on the team we have a womanizer on a team of women if that's you know if we're to take it at face value seems a little strange I really like the scene with Barbara and her father I mean it's you know it's almost talking shop but it's also just having fun as well that you know little interaction with the bacon and and things like that and just seeing them together I think hopefully we're getting back to sort of their the golden age of their relationship and just you know, them spending time together and them relating. And again, I wonder if the Bensigers can and will pull the trigger of a reveal and would it be in this book? And I think, again, I'm going to say yes, because I think this page or a couple pages and it is an example why I think they understand the importance of that relationship. But uh, will they do it? I don't. It's interesting that Dinah and Helena are going undercover for such an inane reason. You know, it's not like a mission overseas where several people are in danger, but it's these realtors that are sneaking around and are up to no good. Funny moments throughout, especially at the beginning with the names and how they look and everything and Helena just basically wanting to kill Dinah. It's pretty sketchy that these realtors pick up listings that are pretty messed up and have been involved in bad situations. I mean, Riddler has a hole in the wall for whatever reason. Catwoman's flat has still cats swarming around in there. So (laughs) I don't know, but they're kind of, I know how sometimes attorneys are known as ambulance chasers, right? Something happens and they'll follow that person in the hospital and they'll, they'll be able to sue or, you know, get money out of that. I guess these people just sort of wait for a villain to get in trouble and then they go right to the spot. 
I don't even know how Babs found the gold because if you look at this image, it's pretty hysterical, that one page. She has three hits into the wall with a sledgehammer. Then there are some random spots in the floor. I mean, was she just like, ah, that's not it, that's not it, let's move on. Wouldn't she have a specific way to look or a more scientific way to find them? I mean, I'm not necessarily thinking of like a metal detector, but something like that. I mean, she was Oracle, for goodness sake. And thus ends the realtor subplot. And so my question for you, or for me, I guess, is, was it satisfying? I'm certainly glad it's done and it didn't become a running joke more than it already did because it was little pieces throughout the issues. And I think had it gone on much longer, I would have just been like annoyed because up to now it's just like a mystery, like what is happening? I think it ended in a comical way, something you certainly didn't expect and not everything needs to be you know, dark and heavy. And so I think this was a lighter way. Uh, you got to know these realtors who certainly have a strange gimmick. And then you find out the reason why they were sneaking around. So, you know, it's not like the best subplot that I ever, the best funny subplot, because I, I think nothing can take the place of the random pies that were hitting people in the face in Suicide Squad. But I am glad it's done. And I think it wrapped up well and it answered questions and it was pretty comical. I like the scene at the end with the birds spending time together in a casual way. They're clearly building a bond in a relationship, and that's what I said needed to happen, especially after really becoming a team at the end. I think they need to understand each other, become friends, deepen that bond, and therefore uh, strengthen the team. I'm glad Ollie was brought up because Dinah had to ignore his call uh, a couple times. That's when she realized, you know, it was Valentine's Day. And it was also said that Dick announced on social media that he was in a relationship. Uh, of course, if you were reading Nightwing, then you would have seen that he meets with her, uh, meets with, sorry, meets with Batgirl slash Babs on a roof and, and talks to her and announces that. So a little bit of a contradiction uh, because it seems like she didn't know in this case, or you could say that uh, they did have that meeting and then this was like solid hey, I'm dating someone, and so it was a reminder of that. But still sad for, you know, dick and bab shippers like myself. This issue really felt like a vintage one, especially because there was a small mission in the beginning, which tied to, you know, a small extent with the realtors popping up into the rest of the issue. And in the previous episode of Backworld Oracle 133, I, I mentioned this before. I'm still not engaging with Oracle, and right now he's just more annoying than anything, which I'm having flashbacks to Hawk in the Gail Simone, I guess, second run of Birds of Prey. So he's got a lot of road to cover before he can convince me that he's on the, uh, on the team for real, and, and I can accept him as that. But overall, I mean, he doesn't necessarily mess up a, a pretty good issue. Uh, I'm going to give this a 9 out of 10 birds. Like I said, I, I really feel like the Benson sisters are paying a good homage to uh, the classic stuff. Well, let's see if my good humor remains as I move into Batgirl number 8, a.k.a. Batgirl number 60. And this is the Son of Penguin Part 2. Writer Hope Larson, pencils and cover Chris Wildgoose, inks John Lamb, and colorist Matt Lopez. Babs and Ethan are trapped on a subway train when a hologram of Two-Face appears, saying it is rigged to explode. They realize the bomb is connected to the stop request buttons, and they pick the two buttons at the second row. Get it? Two and two. They push them, and the bomb is diffused, and we find out, oh, they were actually in an escape room. 
Ethan compliments Babs on her intelligence, and she asks him what it was like having, or what it is like having, Penguin for a dad. He says that is second date material, but she pushes him, saying if he wants a second date, he better tell her. It seems his mother was a waitress at the Iceberg Lounge. Of course, Penguin wasn't going to marry her, so he fired her and supported her after she moved to Virginia. Ethan got into Yale, and Penguin sent the last check to pay for his college. Ethan got a full ride to Yale, so he visited Gotham to return the check. It was not a happy reunion. Babs asks one final question, and it happens to be a kiss. Gag, gag. Ethan is interested in continuing whatever this is, and so is Babs. The next morning, Babs goes to the South Burnside Elementary School to teach and mentor young computer-savvy kids. That night, Batgirl spies on Ethan until she is told to hang out with her friends at a laundromat bar, which is both a bar and a laundromat. Alicia is upset because she was misgendered at the fertility clinic and the doctor didn't even apologize. Elsewhere, Babs sees a girl getting hit on and goes to rescue her with bleach. Babs offers to walk her home, but the girl says she has the app called Walk Home, an Uber on foot app. The girl is picked up outside by the walk-home agent, but is once again accosted by the man from the bar until the agent attacks him. Batgirl, watching this all go down, feels like this is a little too heavy and discovers that the walk-home agent is Magpie. It looks like Vic Form again didn't do a background check. They fight and Batgirl knocks her out. The next day, Ethan issues an apology saying that, Vic Form will do better next time. But hey, 100% of Walk Home users have made it home safely. At his office, Ethan mentions that any publicity is good publicity and that he is looking to get Batgirl out of his way next. Next up, Cobblepot 2.0. Well, at the very beginning, I thought that this was pretty fun with the escape room. Uh, this is something that I don't know for how long it's been around. I had no idea about it until... One of my eighth grade advisees had said that for her birthday, she went to an escape room with her uh, friends for sort of a birthday party. And uh, it was interesting just to, to hear about it. And I kind of wanted to do it, but it seems like it's better in a group setting. and I couldn't do it by myself. It seems like it could be a fun date idea, but boy, are you really put into the <laughs> the middle of it if this is your first date you don't really get to talk too much to them but you figure out if your date is a dud or not because if they help you out they're like oh wow he's intelligent and then you know maybe there'll be a second date i think this is especially great for babs because she can show off her intelligence and again i think she can probably judge whether the guy is worth it for her it's a sad origin story for ethan certainly but I'm surprised Penguin gave any money, and I'm wondering if this is a true story. I like how in Ethan's return to Penguin to give back the check, Penguin says he hoped to find something of himself in Ethan, but he just is disgusted by Ethan. And I'm wondering, I thought that this was a great line. I don't know if this is how Larson meant it to be, but I wonder if this is to be taken literally since Ethan is actually rather attractive. And we know that Penguin has had problems with that. And that's why Penguin and Bruce Wayne are very much antitheses of each other. And that's why he hates him a great deal, right? Because Penguin is a homely looking fellow and Bruce Wayne is not. Shockingly, listeners, I didn't like that Babs and Ethan kissed. 
I can't tell in what way it's to be taken. Is it to be taken at face value that she actually wanted to see if there's chemistry and she's testing it out? Or is it a ruse? She even mentioned she needs to stay away from guys who are bad for her. And I guess that, hey, the last issue all the time she mentioned her books and only books that attitude only lasted one issue. Why can't we just have Barbara Gordon be on her own? If You know, just for an arc. Is that so much to ask? The scene at the school is cute. Uh, I enjoy the, the little girl that we get to know. But again, we're dealing with ideas and concepts that average comic readers are not going to understand. A lot of that stuff went over my head. And I'm thinking back to the, the bio weapon that was mentioned in or was, I guess, the whole plot of the previous arc when she was over in Asia. So I, I don't know if this is trying to, I guess, make up for things and like, hey, look, you know, look what Babs can do and look at all the the intelligence. Because then you're like throwing people out of the loop because, you know, in Birds of Prey and, and the things in the past, you know, pre-New 52, I think that there was certainly lots of stuff – lots of discussion and technological talk, but you could, for the most part, follow it. But this, I was very puzzled as to what was going on. It's fun how the little girl talks in code, especially on her way home when she is picked up by the walk-home agent. So I will say that I did appreciate that and thought that was nerdy and fun or geeky and fun. Who knows? Batgirl spies on Ethan. Is that creepy? How can we take this relationship? <sighs> I'm concerned. Be- well... I guess the question is, like, how far separated are the Barbara Gordon and the Batgirl identity? And this almost goes back to that scene in Birds of Prey where, you know, she is standing in front of the mirror and she said, in my Oracle, in my, in my Batgirl, in my Barbara Gordon, I'm all of them. But here, I mean, she, it just seems like split personality. We've got Barbara Gordon doing one thing and having one sort of feeling and then Batgirl doing something completely different. And I'm not necessarily sure. I feel like I should not like it and I don't like it. And it's mainly because I think Barbara Gordon and Batgirl are the same person. So if she didn't trust Ethan, then why is she letting him into her personal life as Barbara Gordon? It's just a strange relationship. I don't know why you would be doing one thing at night and a different thing in the morning. A little confusing there. Weird bars. Is this going to be a regular thing? Last time we had the weird fishbowl swimming bar thing. And this time we have this laundromat bar. I can only imagine what is going to uh, happen next. Oh, man. And and speaking of the bar, uh, you know, I can totally see Babs helping the girl at the bar out. Though I think generally in, in movies and things like that, you see a guy, like a sweet guy, helping a girl out. But in this case, it was Barbara Gordon. But, you know, the guy was mainly being annoying, not violent. So did it make sense for her to step in? Why couldn't the girl have just handled it herself, walked away? Where was everyone else? Why didn't someone else come up to her and help out? Not really sure about that. I like the appearance of Magpie here. Uh, now, my only experience with her is actually in the Man of Steel, Superman Man of Steel, I guess, miniseries by John Byrne. So that's my only, yeah, my only introduction and history with her. But I liked her popping up in here. I think it's cool seeing sort of a vintage, I guess I can't really say vintage, but uh, a villain that we haven't seen very often, I think, or for a little while. I like the fact that 
Magpie is, you know, she's just trying to make a buck. Uh, and she's upset that Batgirl has ruined her five-star rating. So, you know, this whole app idea is, uh, I like this one better than the Safe Streets, because that one was a little confusing and seemed more negative than positive. But this one's like walking people home and being safe. And I thought, oh, how nice. And I, I just thought that, you know, it's funny that Magpie is, you know, I'm just trying to make a living here, basically. <laughs> but, you know, the big question at, of all of these apps and things is what Ethan is up to what's he doing with these apps whether he and barbara are going to continue and and um what other bizarre bars or or even apps are going to appear uh so those are sort of the things that i'm going to uh, be looking for now before i give my rating on this i do want to talk about uh the alicia I guess, emotional moment there, right, uh, of being misgendered and, and what that means and how she reacted and why she reacted that way and sort of questions that I have uh, for you listeners and, and any listener that this may have happened to. So first of all, what misgendering means is uh, basically if you misgender someone, you are referring to someone and especially a transgender person, though I think it doesn't necessarily always have to be that, using a word, especially a pronoun or form of address that does not correctly reflect the gender with which they identify themselves. So I imagine that Alicia was misgendered as a female Per, per, per chance, she or her or miss or ma'am. And from outward as well, as, I, I feel like outward and of course fertility, she went in there, I guess, internal appearances, this would seem correct, right? And I don't know how, so the doctor obviously made a mistake. I assume Alicia corrected him because she said uh, he didn't apologize you know, here's a an, an innocuous example from my own life. I was a big fan when I was younger, about first, second, third grade. I still like them, of Wilson Phillips. And when I was about in second grade, I decided to get a bowl cut like China Phillips. And so I did. And then, you know, there were rumblings at school. This was, it was hard at school, actually. And other things where, you know, people thought that I was a boy. So there I would have been misgendered, right? Because I was not a boy, even though I had a bull cut. This was, you know, in the, the late 90s, I guess, or mid to late 90s. So there you go. So that's an innocuous example. Certainly it's not as powerful as what happened to Elise here, or probably what happens every day to transgender and other gendered people. So I think this is a difficult topic. And particularly because I, you know, if I'm checking out or interacting with someone and I want to thank them, I will often say thank you. But I may also add some sort of title to it, like, thank you, ma'am. Thank you, sir. So I think, unfortunately, uh, this could lead me into trouble because what if I'm calling someone a sir and that is not their gender identification? Uh, so the trouble with this is, or like the trouble that I think our culture is going to have with this, is that you can't tell how or in what way the person wants to be identified outwardly. Honestly, this is going to come from like more personal interactions. 
And so I'm trying to think how how are we as a society going to potentially deal with it without, you know, insulting anyone? And really, you're going to have to stop saying, sir, ma'am, you know, any of those labels. Uh, you, you just won't be able to use them and you can only be respectful in saying thank you or I apologize or hello or, you know, what, whatever you're doing there. Uh, I think... I don't feel comfortable with, I looked at the list of pronouns that they are fine with being called, um, and, and I don't feel comfortable with uh, using those pronouns, if only because I feel like, you know, just as in a foreign language, you <laughs> could mistakenly use a word and insult someone, I could mistakenly use the incorrect pronoun there in that situation, and again, uh, insult someone. Now, I did read from someone online that uh, they uh, are fine with being called they or um, them, so using a plural pronoun, which sort of goes against everything I know as a <laughs> as a grammar teacher, you know, in Latin or in English. But you just have to, I think, be open to whatever, and I think we just have to be careful because, like I said, you aren't going to know outwardly what or how someone wants to be identified, and it's more going to come from interactions with someone. And I'm hoping that uh, they are open to educating other people because it's going to be hard if, if you say thank you, ma'am, and then they just go on and then they've been insulted, but they don't speak up. It'd be better if they would say something like, actually, I don't identify with um, female terms. And then that way you can have an interaction, say, I'm so sorry. And then if you're willing to learn from that person and say, oh, in what way or what pronoun would you prefer? Because I certainly, well, I would hope anyways, I would apologize for sure. Hopefully on the spot, I'd be able to think fast and be like, well, how would you like to be called? So I I guess we will see. But I, I think certainly this is a difficult topic. Whether it was dealt with well here, I think it was just touched upon so fast for being such a heavy topic. So I'm not really sure. I don't know if we're going to revisit it or it's just like, this is what happened here. Um, it could have been a good time for an educational moment for readers, but uh, that didn't necessarily happen. Uh, overall, this issue was fun, I think, with wacky moments. Uh, Magpie, I think, you know, in that app were like my favorite moments, basically. I just don't agree with the Ethan and Bab shipping. And I mean... Can you really (laughs) be shocked that I'm saying that? I'm going to give this an 8 out of 10. Bats. Now over to Chris for his Batman 66 review. Or is it Batman 70 review? Ah, that's like finding your favorite version of Batgirl in the adult Batgirl coloring book. Thank you very much, Stella. And am I right? Hello, Batfans. Welcome once again to the Batman 66 review segment. Thank you very much for downloading. And as always, thank you for not fast-forwarding. I'm Chris, and I'm very glad to be with you. Today, I'll review Batman 66 meets Wonder Woman 77, number two. Issue number two was cover dated April 2017. The cover art was provided by Michael and Laurel Allred, and the contents were originally released in download format. The print version of this comic doesn't appear to have a named story or chapter title, and the digital version plainly calls these chapters three and four. The writers are Mark Andranko and Jeff Parker, the penciler was David Hahn, and Carl Kessel was the inker. When we last left little Lord Flaunter, or young World War II boyhood-era Bruce Wayne, he was confronted by a sword-wielding Rayshad Ghoul, who demanded the two-book volumes Lost World of the Ancients. Young Bruce quickly headbutts Raish and makes a run for it. Bruce retrieves the hidden books in the guard maze and exits. 
but not before Raish throws a ninja throwing star, flipping Bruce's arm, with Bruce dropping one of the books, which Raish retrieves. Wonder Woman hears Bruce's exclamation of pain, and with young Talia, heads in his direction, only to run into Raish and his minions, who start to attack the Amazon. Wonder Woman takes them out with the help of Steve Trevor. Wonder Woman uses her golden lasso of truth on one of the minions, and she asks why his boss wants the book. But Raish emits a mental command to the minion, who then starts to smoke, burn, and evaporate. Wonder Woman leaps, or seemingly flies, to look for Bruce in the maze, while Raish departs by car with Talia, settling for just the one book and vowing he won't forget Bruce Wayne. Now running in the nearby woods with the other volume, Bruce is grabbed by a Nazi, but manages to break free. He keeps running, but falls through weak wooden planks and lands in a cave filled with bats. He calls for help, but his cries are only heard by the Nazi leader. Meanwhile, Wonder Woman hears Martha Wayne at the manor threatened at gunpoint by another Nazi, who demands that she call for her son. Wonder Woman swoops in to deflect bullets from her bracelets to protect Martha and Etta Candy. Martha hits the Nazi on the head with a vase, subduing him. Just then, bats enter the manor. Martha tries to wave them out, but they communicate with Wonder Woman, who tells her where Bruce is. Back in the cave, the Nazi leader closes in on Bruce, but Wonder Woman arrives, again deflecting Luger-fired bullets. As Wonder Woman advances, the Nazi leader backsteps and falls over a ledge to his death. Later, back at the manor, the remaining Nazis are carted off by MPs, and Wonder Woman looks through the book. As you will recall in the first issue, was stolen and is now in Raish's possession, and she finds it contains the secret location of Paradise Island. Young Bruce asks Wonder Woman for her autograph, and Wonder Woman tells him that she may be asking for his autograph someday. Bruce's boyhood recollection now ends, and he tells Robin that Raish now knows the location of Paradise Island, and that they must go there to warn Wonder Woman. To be continued. Okay, so a few observations starting with Wonder Woman. Yes, one of Wonder Woman's lesser-known powers is the ability to communicate with animals, which was displayed at least in one episode of the TV series, communicating with a bird in the episode entitled A Date with Doomsday. That was a nice touch for the writers displaying it here, this time with bats. One power you didn't see on the TV series was Wonder Woman's ability to fly or glide on air currents. I've always had some mixed feelings about this, quote, power. I don't recall the Golden Age World War II comics version displaying this power. After all, she had an invisible jet plane. And I think budget restrictions would have been one of the main reasons it wasn't on the TV series. And I think the TV show was better off without her flying anyway. Raisha's mental power over the minion and the incineration was a bit unusual, but I won't question it. Nor will I question Bruce's age here, which I'm thinking is about 10 years old, as opposed to how old he was or may have been the night his parents were murdered. As I said in my last segment, I think there's a potential untapped vein of stories for the boyhood adventures of Bruce Wayne, either in pre- or post-death of his parents. And, of course, this issue has given us the origin of the Batcave and a Batman 66 continuity. And how great and overdue was that? The artwork by Han was splendid, blending a bit of the cartoony, yet still with a faithful depiction of the Linda Carter Wonder Woman. And Draco and Parker had a lot going on here, perhaps too much, but they did a fine job of bringing this recollection chapter to a nice conclusion, or a too-soon stopping point. 
Two issues in, I dare say I wish this was going to be a 9 or 12 issue series instead of its 6 issues. I would not have minded another chapter in this time setting. Over on the TVU website, Jerry Green gave this 4 out of 5 stars. I'm giving Batman 66 meets Wonder Woman 77, number 2, 7.5 out of 10 bats. But by no means am I saying this was a bad issue and I didn't enjoy it. Some very minor quibbles I had would be that Bruce pretty much was just running and being chased throughout the issue and little else. And the writers were unable to give us a more suspenseful cliffhanger or an ending to bridge this conclusion or book to the next issue. But rather, we just have a thread of where the characters now have to go. I know sometimes I'm asking for a bit too much rather than letting the story play out. I did enjoy this two-issue period piece, and having seen what's to come, I know we're in for quite a treat, and there's a lot of great stuff ahead of us. Offhand, I can think of four people who worked on the 60s Batman TV show and the 70s Wonder Woman TV show. As I mentioned in my last segment, Stanley Ralph Ross, who wrote numerous episodes of the Batman series, even appearing as a character named Ballpoint Baxter in a Penguin episode, developed the 70s Linda Carter Wonder Woman TV show. Carolyn Jones, who is Marsha, Queen of Diamonds on Batman, also is one of three women to portray the Queen Mother, or Queen Hippolyta, on Wonder Woman. Roddy McDowell, who portrayed the bookworm on Batman, also appeared on Wonder Woman in the episodes The Man Who Made Volcanoes and The Fine Art of Crime. And, of course, Frank Gorshin, who played the Riddler, also appeared as an evil toy maker named Orlick Hoffman in an episode of Wonder Woman entitled The Deadly Toys. Listeners, please feel free to contact myself or the podcast if you can think of anyone I've left out. In future segments, I'll talk about other notable actors who appeared on the Wonder Woman TV series, select personal favorite episodes, and answer the question if I preferred the World War II episodes or the then-present-day episodes. Listeners, please check out the Bat Books for Beginners podcast that I co-host with Jerry Green. Please feel free to leave any comments for myself on this segment or for the podcast on the TBU website, and please consider leaving us a good review over on iTunes. If you'd like to lend your support to the Batman Universe website and podcast, you can make a donation on Patreon by following the link on the Batman Universe website homepage. If you wish to contact me directly, I can be reached by email at bruce.wayne at gothamcity.us. Thank you for your support. Who will go with Batman and Robin to Paradise Island? What sinister plans does Rayshaw Ghoul have to unfold? What strange creature will our heroes encounter putting them in a perilous predicament? Don't fail to listen to the next podcast where the answers to these wild, wonky, wireless, wearied, whacked worrisomes to be willfully weeded out next time. Same Batstella feed! Same Batstella site. Thank you, Chris. I also want to thank him because he sent me the Batgirl adult coloring book, and I'm so appreciative of that. There have actually been times in work at school where I've like colored something that I've printed off for a stress relief, and uh, it really does relieve stress for whatever reason. I think I was just doing it for funsies, and then I was like, oh my goodness, I feel so relieved. So I'm going to bring that to school for sure and work on that if ever the need arises. I should bring it during uh, <laughs> during meetings but i guarantee i'd get called out so maybe i won't do that but thank you so much chris i very much enjoyed it and it has 
Batgirls from the past and different incarnations of Barbara Gordon, as well as staff, but no cast, which is a bit of a bummer. So, and I know Josh is probably saying, I know how I know, but who cares about her? Listener, something shocking just happened. And it's the fact that I have no literature recommendation. I'm startled as well as you. The fact is that I've been reading for uh, uh, the required reading podcast that I do with Pan Pan. And pretty sure I already recommended this book, the one that I've been reading. It's Rebecca. It's Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier. And so I can't recommend it again, though I would. I also read uh, Lumberjanes Volume 4 trade paperback, and I, I continue to recommend that. The reason is that I'm not recommending reader. Well, actually, no. I take that back. I do have something. It is the Iron Fist epic collection, the Fury of Iron Fist, and the back of this large trade, uh, basically the size of a, or an, essential, though it's in color and not black and white. So the back of it says a Himalayan expedition to find the mystical city of Kunlun left nine-year-old Daniel Rand's parents dead, but he found the path to Kunlun and there spent a decade training under its immortal inhabitants. He became an unmatched master of martial arts and spiritual control. Armed with the shattering power of the Iron Fist, Daniel left immortality behind to set out into the Western world and avenge his parents' deaths. Packed with wall-to-wall kung fu action, Iron Fist runs a gauntlet through the Karakai death cult, ninja adversaries, and mystic dimensions. And it's collecting the Marvel premiere in 1972, issues 15 through 25, Iron Fist, uh, the 1975 volume, issues 1 through 15, and then Marvel team-up from 1972, uh, numbers 63 and 64, with Spider-Man. You have Chris Claremont and uh, John Byrne are the creators listed on this. And I had gotten this, I think, last summer and just hadn't yet to pick it up because I knew it was thicker and so I knew, ugh. But with the Netflix series coming out, I really wanted to read all this. And it was so fun to see it from the beginning to see the first hints of romance as well as the first kiss with uh, Misty Knight. And I'm just so pumped for the Netflix series. He is, I have such a big crush on Danny Rand. And uh, he's one of my favorites. And I'm trying to think if I could potentially watch the entire first season in one day. I don't know if it's possible because I'd have to come home from work, you know, and it'd be like, whew, I'd be staying up all night. I don't know how this will work. But I am so pumped for it. You may expect a special on Backward Oracle talking about this season one of Iron Fist. That's how pumped I am. I just bought a new Iron Fist baseball hat I'm pretty proud of. That's how pumped I am. So I'm super excited for it. But you know, the reason why I totally blanked on words for recommendation is because I've been waiting weeks, perhaps a month, for a book that Pan Pan recommended, and I've had it on hold, and it has yet to come in. And then, you know, that thing happens. It always happens to me where you're waiting, 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 and you're like, well, enough of this. I'm going to get another book. So I just got another book. When did I get it? On Thursday, maybe? No, I think I got it on Friday. I wake up on Saturday, and I get an email that the other one is on hold. That always happens to me, which is ridiculous. So that is why I did not have a literature recommendation because I was waiting for others to come in. So anyways, there you go. I made up for it, though. I came back with some literature recommendations. 
Well, as always, you can send any questions or comments to backworldoracle at gmail.com. I, in particular, would like to hear from people who have been misgendered. I would like to hear from you, uh, maybe about the situation, if you feel comfortable, how you feel people should address you, or do you agree with me? Is it a correct assumption that you won't be able to tell externally from this, but you have to have, you have to engage in a dialogue in order to correctly uh, understand? Please, 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 please write me in. I hope you know that this show is very much an open forum and, and um, I'm trying to be educated. Well, I want to be educated as well as educating others. So Oracle at gmail.com. Like the show on Facebook or follow it on Twitter at Oracle. Follow the Batman Universe on Facebook and Twitter as well. And so Support TBU by subscribing to Patreon. Once again, thanks to my high comics for sponsoring Backroll the Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. And until next time, oh, I am sorry to say that we really didn't get any snow this year. What a bummer for someone who loves snow and loves snow sports. So until next time, maybe some flurries will fall. Fly on, Babs lovers. Just plain Barbara Gordon masquerading for a lark as she rides into the night on her special Batgirl cycle. Who knows? Is the dynamic duo destined to become the triumphant trio? Only time will tell us more about this dazzling dare doll. Batgirl! Ah, I love a happy ending, don't you? Talk short, and I can't see color. Any color but do. I think I knew that's why they call me Pitbull. Cause all the men.
what do you think of Aries popping in? And because for the most part, we were all in. Oh, oh. something's happening here. Something's happening. Boo, tends to bark at every little sound outside. Oh. And then maybe, well, no, it's okay. Okay. It's okay. Maybe, I, I wondered if maybe he was upset because of Genesis, and then I mentioned Aries. Uh, God of War, you know. And it's not Infinite Crisis, which kind of... Oh, oh, oh. Apparently I said Infinite Crisis and it pissed the dogs off. Um, That's what got me back into comics. Uh, and my dog just and Gracie just looks like she's pissed with me because I put her on the ground um, no I, I 